This episode of the podcast is brought to you by HRH Combat Arms. They can turn your vision into reality. They specialize in gunsmithing and Cerakoting. Your Cerakote specialist is Air Force veteran and retired police sergeant Paul Ware, a.k.a. the Sarge. He can Cerakote your firearms, auto parts, tools, even your sports equipment. And then your master gunsmith is Marine veteran Steve Miller. This veteran-owned business is located at 5025 Saunders Suite, 103, Fort Worth, Texas, 76119. You can call them at 682-304-0. 0363. And you can find them online at www.hrhcombatarms.com. That's www.hrhcombatarms.com. This podcast brought to you by Flock Safety, where technology can unite law enforcement and the communities we serve in the pursuit of a safer, more equitable society. Flock Safety builds devices that capture objective evidence, uses machine learning technology to uncover unbiased leads, and sends real-time alerts that prepare officers to be effective and efficient in the field. Uh, look, guys, I'm a detective, and before they were ever a sponsor of the show, used Flock Safety every day. I used it countless times with uh, the technology to include car thefts, package thefts, and, and violent incidents. If you're a patrol officer or a detective in dispatch or even in command staff, you need to check out Flock Safety. These incredibly powerful devices are so much more than your average expensive license plate reader. They're solar powered. They can be installed virtually anywhere. In side-by-side tests, they are 30% more accurate than the old legacy license plate readers. They can capture multiple lanes of traffic, vehicles traveling 100 miles an hour. Uh, and the best part, they were built within the principled framework that never sells their data to third parties. And the exact same technology that I use every day is available for neighborhoods, businesses, law enforcement, and citizens of all sizes. Think about that. Members of the community use same tech so we can all work together in public and private partnership. If you want to learn more about Flock Safety, go to flocksafety.com backslash two cops. That's F-L-O-C-K-S-A-F-E-T-Y.com backslash the number two and the word cops c-o-p-s blocksafety.com backslash two cops all right welcome back to cops one donut i am your host eric levine and today i have the one, the only, the Buck Wheeler with me. How are you today, sir? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I so I fanboyed out about you a little bit. Like I've got third. I, I didn't notice. I've got yeah. I know. God, you know how to cut me. Uh, it's the worst. There's nothing worse than looking up to somebody that knows like your flaws. Like and they're like Eric. Really? Like he really wants to do good. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just gonna jab him. But uh, yeah, so I've had 30 episodes now, and out of the 30, you've probably been mentioned in almost all of them. So, oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So you're you're a pretty big deal in my world. Uh, I know it's not the other way around, but... I hope my wife watches this. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't it, know if she'd say the same, though. No? Probably not. Oh, I know. At least she's, she likes you a little bit. <laughs> so... Hmm. While we are enjoying this, I always like giving shout outs to what we're having. So um, Buck brought over Turning Point Beer, Endgame. It's a 16.2% ABV. It's a stout and it tastes like aged toffee. It does, yeah. Uh, That's the best way I can describe it. And that's actually, uh, I've been saving that for about three years. Oh yeah, that's right. It's aged three years. So um, Good beer. So for those wondering what's coming down the pipe today, because my episodes tend to be a little lengthy, uh, 
we're going to talk about Buck. He's going to kind of give us a little background on why he came into police work, uh, where he's from, stuff like that. But the bread and butter of this one is going to be use of force. Uh, I have been in law enforcement 17 years. Um, I've had the uh, privilege, I guess you could say, of learning use of force from the military, uh, a federal police agency, and local city police agencies. Uh, kind of spread out throughout the country, actually. And the way you explain use of force has never resonated with me nearly it's resonated with me more than it ever has before. Like I really started to get it and you, you can recognize when somebody's really good at getting a point across and teaching and stuff like that. And you've got this unique ability to, to reach the majority of the people that you teach and cool. it's just a Thank certain you. style. So, uh, I've wanted to get you on here because I think not only will other cops that watch the show be able to really fully understand or even change the way that they kind of view use of force. Um, citizens the, the the bridge that i'm trying to gap anyway because you also teach us citizens use of force uh mm-hmm. yeah. thing so um it's it's it goes both ways we got to teach our officers and we got to teach citizens so um before we get into all that though uh let's get into you buck what exactly were you born in texas first i was yeah I was you born. were a native here yeah. okay but it's, you traveled <clears throat> i did yeah okay that's yeah. what i thought so um First, what got you into law enforcement? I'm trying to give you the short version. Um, it's um, I, I never really thought about law enforcement. Didn't grow up wanting to be a cop. Um, not a particular fan of police. Um, and uh, it was, I think, in 98. Um, I, I consider it probably the closest thing I had to a religious experience. I was in the sign business at the time. And oddly enough, for a while, my position, I was the central order processor for for manufacturing companies uh, or sites throughout the United States. So my initial was the cop at work. But the um, the reason I got into it, it was really, I was honestly just driving home and um, something just hit me. I, I remember I was, uh, uh, there was some construction, everything was down to one lane and there was a patrol car getting pulling out of a, I don't know, hamburger fast food place and people were still driving. Nobody was stopping to let that car in. So I stopped, let that officer in front of me. And then in that moment, somehow, some way I knew I was supposed to be a cop. What? My hands. Yeah. You didn't expect this story, did you? No. My, my hands were sweating. Um, I can still remember the moment very well. And I don't know how and why, but I knew I was supposed to be a cop somehow, some way. And nine months later I was at the police academy and no shit. So that's why I'm a cop. Okay, I see. You already broke the cardinal rule, sir. Oh, did, did I move away from the mic? <laughs> no. Uh, you mentioned your department. Oh, <laughs> that's probably the quickest that it's happened. Congratulations. Great. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, I'm sure you're proud of where you're at. You're not going to say anything bad. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm very proud of where I work. As am I. Um, but we keep it separate just so they don't have to worry about anything. Um all right, so first and foremost, how old were you when you had this epiphany? 25. Okay, so you're about 25 years old. You'd already served in the military? Yeah, I was. I uh, did some time in the Navy okay. and All right. worked on an aircraft carrier. All right, yeah. so we may, be, we may be killing a lot of, a lot of uh, visions that people have had of you if they listen to this. So 
Are we gonna? Is, is it visions that you have created? Maybe okay. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. It's not what <laughs> I know what you're talking about. So, uh, rumor has it I don't know where it started that you were a Navy SEAL. It's just a rumor. It's just. I a wish rumor? I could I could lay claim to that, but I can't. Oh man! See no. if 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 anybody ever wanted to watch this show and they find out that. The truth came out on here. They're going to be disappointed, they, I guess. Yeah. I, either going to be disappointed, but you may get me a lot more viewers just for that one episode. Okay, good. So that will we'll be, go with that. that'll be a plus. And be yeah. like, hey, you want the exclusive on Buck yeah. and know where he's been, what he's done? Yeah. This, is, <laughs> this is... So the Navy. Uh, yeah. What what drew you to the Navy? Kind of another interesting story. Um, it was... Uh, never really thought about getting in the Navy. I was on my own. I've been on my own since I was real young. And... Um, I just knew I needed to get out of town and go do something different. And the thought of just completely relocating and going somewhere else sounded great. And that's why I got in. And I was, I was actually, I tested for, I was putting in for Air Force, believe it or not. Yeah. And I scored pretty good in the ASVAB and I did everything. And then there was, uh, I had a whole bunch of traffic violations. They said, we got it. We can put you in the delayed entry. We got to give these a few months. And I told them, I don't want to wait a few months. So they said, well, you have no choice. you got to wait a little while. And so I went to a Navy recruiter, walked in there, said, I've done everything. I've tested, did all the physical stuff. I'm ready to go. And it, while we're sitting there talking, he looks on a computer. He pulls up a bunch of info, and he says, oh, this guy dropped. His plane leaves in six days. You want to go? I go, yep, I'll take it. So six days later, I was at boot camp. Oh, man. Holy cow. There's no. All right, so you, you mentioned this, and um... – you said that you were on your own mm-hmm. for for a while now. There is a stigma with police officers that we we only uh, attract certain types of personalities and, and different back and types of backgrounds. So right. a lot of it is you know the kid that was bullied, the um, the Boy Scout, uh, what's some other ones, the alphas, you know stuff like that. Um, sure, the psychos, whatever you want to call it, because you do kind of kind of have to have a stronger personality to do the work in the street anyway um with you one you you were <laughs> you were inspired by traffic letting a cop car in well, in some I, way i would I, I don't even think that's what inspired me it was just i remember that was the moment i just knew okay i don't know how i knew i'm supposed to be a cop okay yeah. well i mean it's it's kind of like when people knew they had, you know, Christians knew they had Jesus in their heart or something right. to that effect. Which is why I say that's probably the closest thing I had to a religious experience. I couldn't explain it. I just knew, and everything just fell right into place. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. So, but your background, you, you explain how you were raised on your own, because I, I think it's unique, and it shows that we, it, all types can be very successful in this line of work. Yeah. So. Um. How far back? Um, I guess it, look, t- tough question to, to, to answer. I guess what, yeah. what's relevant, maybe. Um, the uh, so I'll, I'll just kind of do the fast forward okay. kind of version. So my dad died from suicide when I was really really young. Um, my mom in the seventies got it was a big pot bust. I mean, that was my first experience with police. They kicked in our doors, arrested her, um, and then it was we moved around a lot. After that, different kind of boyfriend, stepdad type here and there. Ever since I was a kid, my mom's had some kind of addiction to something. Um, 
good mom in the sense that she loved me, but she had her own issues that she was dealing with. And then we'll kind of fast forward early kind of tween teen years. Um, had a lot of stuff going on in the family. We were always financially, it was very common for us to have our electricity out for a while or water turned off. I mean, it was no big deal to go dumpster dive to get food or yeah. you know, borrow a neighbor's water hose to clean up. That was just something we did from time to time. But uh, I think it was, we were actually officially homeless probably I think it was about 13 going on 14 um lived out of a car you name it I mean yeah car slept on benches just where we find a place to stay and the only reason I I still did that my brother left um he did his own thing when he was about 15 so he split older or younger he was older okay or still is but yeah (laughs) I hope so he's not dead um but uh um so I stayed I I stayed around more to kind of keep an eye on my mom and help her out. I, I felt obligated. So I could have been on my own. I could have, I was, I've been working since I was 11. Everything yeah. I've owned down to my underwear I've had to buy since I was 11. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me just because one, it breaks my heart personally. Like, and I know you are who you are because of all the stuff you've been through and it's right. great because you're an awesome dude, well, but, thanks. um, you know, you hear it and mm-hmm. to you, it's just, this life. You made it, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, you, you obviously succeeded through that, yeah. but, um, for guys on the outside looking in like, God, that's so heartbreaking, man. Yeah. Now looking back, it's, uh, I've actually written some stuff about it. Um, I had a, oh, little, uh, blog site that I would write from time to time. I've written about it. And when a, one of the college classes I took, they asked us to write about some, an experience in life. So I've written about some of it, but, uh, yeah, looking back, it's definitely very surreal, mm-hmm. almost kind of like um, repeating a movie that I watched. Yeah, but when it, but when I look back, I never have any memories of like my childhood was rough or hard. It's, it's just that's just what life was. It's just how we lived. It was just it was. I, I was happy. I was fine. I was. I knew I could take care of myself. Yeah, and then it was. Um, oh yeah, we ate ducks, crawdads, snakes, ate a squirrel one time. Uh, Whatever we could, whatever we can catch, dumpster diving. Yeah, try to talk towards. Oh, them. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'll get it. Yeah, I told you yeah, that's going to be the hardest part of staying here. I'll keep you on track. Um, the, I think the part that I enjoyed the least, it wasn't that big of a deal, but I was so I was always so embarrassed to go where they like a church to ask for food. Hated that. Couldn't stand that. Mm-hmm. That was just that was just me, you know, being prideful, and which is why I would work. I would I would hustle here and there. I work wherever I could. And then at 16, that's when I made a decision. I couldn't, I couldn't live with my mom or stay around her anymore. I had to take care of myself. So I, I split and then yeah, was on my own and never made an F in high school. I mean, not on a report card. I was an honor grad. So you made uh, yourself keep going to school. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you avoided crime for the most part. Yeah, other traffic like. tickets. I, yeah. I think I had an issue with those. That was probably my, my biggest struggle. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, school was easy. I had free breakfast, free lunch. Uh, I was a straight A student, graduated top 10%, honor grad. Do you think it was because the perspective you, you had, the way you led life was like, you guys are, are you're not appreciating what you have. And you've got, this stuff is for free. And temporarily, at least for six, eight hours a day, it's got a roof and AC mm-hmm. and all that stuff over your head. And all you're required to do is get good grades, or at least try to. Absolutely. My perspective 
was that way, which yeah. is I attribute a lot of it to that. I, I didn't take anything for granted. Um, that's why I say school was easy. It was yeah, because I was working full time when I was in high school. So because <laughs> I had to I had to pay bills, right? You know, so uh, school was easy. Had a place where I, I knew I was all I had to do was my homework and my grades. So I could ace that, get my free breakfast, free lunch, and then I had to go work. There you are, sir. So okay. So after that, um, you you make it through high school, which obviously uh, is, I mean, that's big, man. I mean, I, growing up in Flint, I had a lot of friends that I don't want to compare it to yours, but something similar where terrible living conditions, um, and they were, they weren't going to school like that was the cool friend, you know, right. like they don't have any responsibilities. Their parents don't get on them about stuff while well, their parents weren't there, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so it it only made sense that most of them they're in trouble with the law. They're at least they didn't go anywhere. They're still there. They still live in that same city. And uh, it sounds like you use you didn't even have to use the military to to get away with, with those type of grades. I mean, you could have easily. Did, did you try to do college at all? I did honestly. Okay, so good question because when that time came after graduating high school. Um, I was working in construction, just some odd jobs here and there. Oh, one thing that uh, I honestly thought I was going to be an artist for the rest of my life because I can draw, I can paint. I did. Yeah. I was in. I took all the art classes. I could do pottery on the wheel, and I made my own dishes for when I was staying in an apartment. So I used the art class to make my bowls and plates at school. Oh my at god, school. that's awesome! Yeah. So um, art was a, a big deal for me. I've always been doing art. So I thought, okay, maybe I can, and I sold a few little pieces here and there, but that's like 40 bucks, 60 bucks, not enough to pay bills. Yeah. So I realized that's probably not going to be a career path. That's probably going to stay as a hobby, yeah. which it still is. But the, uh, it was, I think, um, shortly after high school, I started looking into a university. What do I, cause I knew my grades were good enough. I could probably qualify maybe for some grants, certainly for some loans. And it was overwhelming. Like the, the, the paperwork, I was going, okay, there's got to be an easier way. And then I just got to thinking, I got to do something. I got to, because when I was in high school, I didn't connect that well. I, I have friends in high school, but not they, they had uh, lives that most teenagers did. You know, mom and dad didn't buy me these shoes or, you know, I got this to worry about. So we just had a completely different problem set. Not that it was bad or good. It was just different. So I connected. Most of my friends were in their 20s. Okay. You know, when I was 16, 17, 18, most of my friends were 25, 28. And then um, it was after high school, started looking at college, realizing, oh, my gosh, this is a lot more paperwork than I thought it or thought thought it. Um, yeah. Can, can you edit that? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, that one's staying. No, the, uh, thank you. <laughs> for the jab <laughs> earlier. I've never been known for my grammar, so I can live with that. But uh, uh, it was around that time when I said, uh, I just, I need to get out of this environment. And that's when I looked into the military. Okay. And I loved it. I had a, I had a blast in the military. Didn't want to stay in, though? Just did you no, four I, years? I, I did. <laughs> Okay. I did. I was actually testing for buds. and Thanks for bringing and, it up, Levine. Yeah, no, so I, I did. I was, I was actually doing, with, God, I'd do some silly stuff. We would, for fun, we'd go do a two-mile swim and all this ridiculous, these hikes and runs. And uh, so, because boot camp actually got promoted in boot camp just because it was easy. Yeah. Got paid, got fed, just had to do what I was told. It was easy. And then even military life was easy. Just got paid, got fed, had a place to live. Yeah. Shut just up in color. It. 
Yeah. So I go, yeah. Hey, I, I think I'll stay here. So I said, I'm, I'm going to go into bud. So I started testing for all that. I went on vacation and then I have an uncle, uh, as my mom's older brother. Um, he wrote me a letter and we were just kind of communicating through mail. And I told him what my plans were. And he said, I know based on your life, you're, you get, you, you think you got a good there and you do, don't limit yourself because you can apply what you know out in the real world. And there's a lot more opportunities that got me thinking. I went on vacation and I realized there's a real world out here. There's other things. So when I came back, I said, now nah, I'm going to go ahead and finish my enlistment. Okay. That's it. So, yeah. And, uh, I, I like that you mentioned that you're an artist because you have a full back tattoo. I do. And you created it yourself. I did. Correct. Yeah. yeah I drew yeah. most of it. And then the, uh, tattoo guy, he kind of, <laughs> That's what tattoo guys do. You know, like some things they got to kind of fill in here and do whatever. Right. But yeah, it's all pieces that I drew. Just so it looks yeah. n- normal and not, yeah. Right. Um, you know, when I got my first ink done and my only ink, yeah, I was, I, I had an idea in my head and he's like, eh. he's like, we'll do this. He's like, what do you think about this idea? Because I, I wanted like some, I don't know, some design around it. And he's right. like, eh, it's not going to translate the way you think it will. I was like, right. Well, you do this for a living. I trust you. So yeah, yeah. I'm happy with it. And, uh, I want to expand. I asked you, I was like, Hey, do you, did you, do you draw for people? Do you want to He's like, uh, no, not quite like that. I was yeah. like, all right, I get the clue. <laughs> <laughs> I get the clue. So, um, on top of that, so probably, obviously, this is a whole filling out process. I want people to kind of get to know you and understand who you are, where you came from, so they can say, all right, I kind of got an idea of this guy's personality and his right. background to see if they're going to buy in with what you got to say. Now, sure. you um, you jump into law enforcement what year? Uh, 99. 99. How long have you been in law enforcement? That's since 99, 22 so, years, a little tw- over 22. 22 years, okay. The only reason I asked, I figured you'd know that number off the top of your head, and I can't do the math. So yeah. uh, I can't please work uh, for a reason. It. I got it. Yeah. can't do math, guys. <laughs> uh, so, all right. So law enforcement, 22 years uh, down in Texas. And um, you get into law enforcement. Do you have an idea of the type of path you wanted to take? No, not not at all. Um, had no clue. Uh, I just knew this was the path that, that I was supposed to be doing. I, I actually had, uh, some people, um, prior to that, there were just some friends and people I worked with and I, I don't know why they said what they said, but they said, oh, you ever thought about being a cop Man, you'd make a good cop. And I go, no, that's not for me. Yeah. Nah, no, it's not for me. Um, uh, you know, some of it looking back in my, because this is back when Brazilian Jiu Jitsu was, oh, yeah. was coming out and, uh, yeah. Um, so I got into that and actually, uh, there's, there, there were a few occasions where I, one time I, somebody stole something from a mall to help get the guy and twist him up, get the property back. And, All right. you know, so I don't know who knows. Yeah. You got into it when it was like, it just hit it's the back, States. It, yeah. I got into it back when you can actually do an arm bar and there was no counter, you know, <laughs> there, was, there was no, <laughs> you can do like a rear naked choke or something and that's it. There's yeah. no, there's no counter to, yeah, it's totally it's totally morphed. It's it's evolved oh, yeah. so far now. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I think it's awesome. I think it's one of the best things that's happened to martial arts in general. Um, it's kind of the whole mindset of Bruce Lee. Like yeah. that was his mantra, and that was like, like adapt all these different types. And Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I think it was the standalone. You know, if you want to like, you know, sumo wrestling versus Jiu Jitsu versus Kung Fu versus all these different things, uh, Jiu Jitsu was the standalone obvious winner, like, to me. And, you know, it's not that a boxer couldn't 
catch him or anything like that. But you go to the ground as a boxer, you're, it, it changes things. It changes things. Yeah. yeah, you're done. So, um, and anybody that's listening, oh man, what about Muay Thai and all that? I, I get it. I'm just saying in general vagueness that jujitsu to me is probably the best one out of all of them yeah. uh, at that time. But today, like even jujitsu itself has opened up to now they have adopted a ton of wrestling. Like mm-hmm. there's a bunch of wrestling. There's some good judo that's in it. Um, so even jujitsu itself is now kind of its own mixed martial art. Yeah, and everything's molded together, and um, which kind of brings us into use of force stuff. But before we quite get the, there, the segue, the yeah, segue. Yeah, before <laughs> we get to that, um, you get in the police department and you're feeling it out, and you're just trying to decide. Like you know, obviously patrol. That's the way we all start. So you get to patrol. You're in a lively city. Um, mm-hmm. Shoot, it was so lively that Cops has been there and the the show. And yeah. I heard Cops is coming back, by the way. Okay, um, cool. If they haven't yet. Yeah. Not to that city, but they're they're the, the TV show. Back in business, yeah. Yeah, back in business. So that's kinda neat. Um and as you're feeling it out, are you where are you seeing your past start to take you? What are you learning in law enforcement? Is it everything you thought it would be? It was it better? Was it it's some of it was what I thought, but the majority of it was not. Um, it, there were so many, um, things I didn't expect. Uh, it, it, it's certainly hindsight's always twenty twenty. knowing the things that I know now, I probably would have navigated a little bit differently, dealt with personal situations a little bit differently. Rest is yours. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know you yeah. Just checking. Yeah. But, uh, no, when I got into it, um, the, I, I think the, the biggest thing that, that uh, was different than what I expected was, was the rewards of the job usually happen when I'm not expecting it. It's not, it's, it's not yeah. what, what I thought that, you know, and I, I did, I did not get into the job expecting people to like me or, you know, praise me for being a cop or I, I didn't care about that. I just knew I trust myself with this authority based on my background. One thing I've always believed is, Whatever happens, just treat people right yeah. through the process. And um, the I had a lot of surprises. You know, when I, I thought people might appreciate, sometimes they didn't. But then it was people, sometimes it was people that I ran into later. I remember one guy in particular. I didn't remember. Uh, the rest of the guy, I can't remember what it was for. And then um, ran into him, I don't know, it was like six, seven months later. And, and he goes, hey, you're that, that officer. And see him got talking. So yeah, I remember that. And he goes, man, I just want to shake your hand. He goes, thank you. That changed my life. And I I honestly don't really know what I did, but for me, that was a reminder of, okay, what I am doing, there's, there's good here. I may not always see it on the surface, but I know I'm doing something in in, in a positive light that that will help people. Right. Somehow, some way. Yeah. Um, as you go and cause I'm with you on that. Like I, I've had those experiences where you run into somebody, um, Several times more, more than you would think you ever would. You run into somebody that you arrested or not even arrested, just somebody you had a positive, you tried to have a positive contact with right. and you didn't think it went anywhere. Like, well, that was like talking to the wall and they come back to you, man, you know, and they, they, they let you know. And yeah. when you find that stuff out, um, to me, that's the, that's the addiction to the job. It is the, yeah. the self reward system, I guess. Um, and like you said, it's hard to say that without sounding like you do this for the praise. You know what I mean? You can't do this job expecting praise. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. It's it's nice, but yeah, creating that expectation. 
yeah, will I mean, often lead to disappointment because it, do, it usually doesn't happen the way we expect. Yeah, I I found a lot on this show when I try to I don't know lift something up. I end up critiquing myself real hard on. It. I'm like, God, you're you're trying to make a point, and all you're doing is countering it like this flock safety stuff. It's it's a camera system, you know. Sure. And but to me, it's changed the way that I've done police work. Like, and I'm like, it's the shit. Yeah. But it's a it's a sponsor now, and now I sound like a fanboy that's right. just propping <laughs> them up because they pay me money. You know. Yeah. And that's not the case. Just like. You you get these deposits from the citizens that you make these contacts with, and you say you didn't sign up to be a cop for the praise, but that's your favorite one of your favorite parts, and it's not necessarily because of the praise, but you you realize you did some good in the world. So I don't know. I, I find that happens a lot on here. It, so it, it's, it does. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to say it without sounding like a hypocrite. So um, yeah. I get what you're saying. Um, it's it's one of those things also that uh, I hope changes somebody to come to do the job i got lucky my dad was in law enforcement which you know him um i didn't like cops growing up especially up in flint i had bad run-ins with them and uh and uh i think flint's trying to do the best they can with what they got now but this we're talking back in the early 90s and stuff like that and um Long time ago, huh? It well for me. I, I know, mean, I know. You're things. super old, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was a kid. You were a full yeah. grown adult yeah. back then, so um, that's cool. You'll be dead soon. Um, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and dark humor with cops, yeah. guys. Um, and I did not like. I remember calling my dad. Like I, I had that crutch where I could be like, I don't like these guys are assholes. This is what happened. Stabbed my basketball. They popped it. And, you know, mm-hmm. and slammed my hood hoop down and all this stuff. And uh, that could have ruined cops for me forever. That one bad experience. And then my dad tells me like, you can. He said a lot of stuff, but you can either be a part of the problem or part of the solution. And that did not sit with me at the time. But by the time I became a high schooler. You know, like in the back, back of my mind, I knew I was always going to go down that path. Right. But a part of me fought that and was like, you know, fuck police. You know, they're right, right, assholes right. like da, 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 da. So, and that's what my friends were saying too, you know? Yeah. So he, I guess what I'm trying to get to is those little moments that aren't a big deal to us. And that may not have been a big deal to the guys that stabbed my basketball. It may not have been a big deal to them. To them, maybe they... They were making an impact to to keep me away from crime. But what they don't know is they almost alienated me the complete opposite way. Right. And when we go out there and, like you said, you got into law enforcement because you knew you were going to do the right thing and do good things. And just by doing that, whether it was big or little, comes back and it rewards you. So um, I don't know where I was going with that fully, but... It just sounded beautiful. It did. But one thing that popped in my head when you were talking about the basketball. Okay. uh, And, you know, and... It could have turned out completely different. One yeah. thing that's always stuck with me is life is 10% what happens and 90% how you react to it. So it, cause it's not, it's not the event that causes trauma for us. It's, it's how we interpret those events. So right. it, it still comes back to perception. So when something negative or could be negative happens to you, I love where this is going. This is where you go, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. And you have a choice. You have a choice. You can, you can make something constructed out of a constructive out of it, and in practicing that behavioral pattern, the more you do it, the easier it gets. 
kind of back to my background, that's the behavioral pattern that my mom taught me when I was really young with all the hardships. So that's why when I look at my childhood, it wasn't a bad childhood. It wasn't, I had a blast. I thought it was a good childhood because that's how I chose to see things. Yeah. So your mom got you down that path. Yeah. 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 That emotional intelligence though. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was, she was like the, she was the, the, the best at it. Really? Anybody, okay. Anybody she talked to, she made them feel like they were special. She would even say that you're so special to everybody she talked to. Yeah. Um, she connected with everybody. So I kind of picked that up on her and it just kind of translated into my adult life. Yeah. So even with law enforcement, you know, it's, it's, it's what we make of whatever happens to us. Yes. Um, for those, like, this is what I called getting Buck Wheelered. Um, he's got this way of explaining things and then changing your, your perspective on everything. And he got me down this path. Hey, Buck, I need a good book to read. And he's like, I'm reading all this stuff on emotional intelligence and leadership. And I'm like, okay, what do you got? So he gives me like three books. Of course, I... I listened to all of them because I don't read. So I put them on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I was actually on my military time. Okay, um, yeah. So I was down at the base. You know, my family doesn't, they're not there during the week. So I listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm there and all of the emotional intelligence stuff. Um, maybe we could touch on that too. Oh, um, absolutely. Well, I, we, I can find a way to fold it in. Somehow, okay. So, I, yeah. I want to get into the, to the use of force stuff first before we get there. But, um, yeah, let's segue into that because if we start going down the emotional intelligence road, it's, it's a rabbit hole. It is for sure. And yeah. uh, but it basically the basic premise is exactly what he's saying. It's it's uh, how you choose to interpret things, and you can flip your own perspective basically uh, at your own whim if you really start to master it. And I will catch myself mad about something, and I just repeat to myself: emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence. Okay, yeah, that pissed me off. But how can I spin it? And then I figure out angles to spin it, and then it works for me. So uh, recently, actually came in. I'll tell you that off here. But, um, yeah, anyway. So use of force, Buck. You've been in police work for a long time. And was use of force ever a big topic even when you first started? Or is that something that's more of the woke culture? How? Good question. Um, Use of force, it's always been... I think a very important aspect um, of law enforcement and certainly something that arguably sets this occupational field apart from a lot of other professions. Um, the attention that use of force gets now, in, in, from what I can see, is much more than what it did before. However, it's still, it's always been something that is at the forefront of whether it's community related issues, departmental related issues. Use of force, even though it's a very small percentage of what law enforcement is about and does, it, it's probably at the top of the food chain that causes the most problems, um, injuries, death, lawsuits, uh, damage relations, uh, damage trust between the community and department. So it's always been an important topic. I think it's it's gotten more attention um, in as I've navigated through my career. I've seen it become a much more important topic. Okay, so you say it's... it's um... <clears throat> It's a small percentage of how law enforcement, there's people that are going to argue with you that that's not true. They think that use of force is a daily occurrence in some form or fashion. What have you seen statistically, at least in a local aspect? I'm not going to say nationally, but just in your bubble, in your fishbowl. Sure. It. Um, I, I think defining things helps. Uh, 
First of all, defining what a use of force is. Um, for the most part, it's most departments in major cities, they define use of force very similar anytime we have to uh, gain control with somebody or, or of somebody with a, some kind of weapon system, less lethal, lethal, whatever the case may be, or where we're using some kind of open hand tactics or weaponless strategies that are likely to cause an injury. So most departments, something that falls in that category tracks it as use of force. Um, and the reason I say that is because if we really look at the, the definition of use of force or what force is, it's compelling someone to do something. So it could be argued that a use of force is even an officer's verbal commands or maybe their presence that might compel somebody to do something. So that's why I say defining use of force, most major departments, it's something where there's a weapon system involved, maybe the threat to use the weapon system or using it, and then some kind of weaponless strategy that's likely to cause an injury. Okay. So I forgot what the question was, but I, I wanted to throw out, you know, what, how we're looking at use of force. Yeah. Just, just because if we have if we have uh, citizens listen to the to the to the show, in in I'm not really sure. Everybody might see it a little bit differently. So I want to get everybody on the same page and what use of force is defined for most major law enforcement. Right. Give some examples of, of what you're talking about from from the bottom all the way to the top. Um. From the bottom, the one that's uh, pointing a firearm at uh, a subject, intentionally pointing a firearm, uh, is often considered use of force in most major cities. It's uh, certainly the firearm is involved, but it's it's is very low risk because most people will comply. Um, uh, and then, and the top of use of force is certainly the opposite of that is the use of deadly force using a firearm. And then there's we have everything in between, which could be. A dynamic takedown or like when I say dynamic, something where it's in motion, like we're running and we tackle someone okay. um, or maybe even a strike or uh, deploying a taser. Those would those are certainly use of force. But handcuffing someone, certainly I'm using a restraining device. I'm compelling someone to to do what I say and gaining control of that situation. Um, the handcuffs, I wouldn't consider that a use of force uh, for most major departments. Uh, it could be argued it is a is a form of force, sure, but it, most departments don't track every time we handcuff a person that that's a use of force. Does it matter if it's compliant versus non-compliant? No, it doesn't, because okay. it, it's what happens if we're dealing with someone who's non-compliant. See, I know I get I get used to keep my head here, so I can use my hands out here because I'm okay. a hand person. So <laughs> this this gives me I got a balance here. So non-compliant is. Uh, for those listening, most people probably know, but those that don't, non-compliance is somebody who's who's resisting. That could come in all kinds of forms, pulling away, running, fighting. But if I get the handcuffs on the person without having to use a weapon system, taser, or a strike, or a takedown, then that's not a use of force. They can still be non-compliant. I mean, I could just hold on to the person and sometimes just kind of hold on to the person. Hey, look, calm down, calm down. Sometimes that's enough. Yeah. But that wouldn't that wouldn't be considered a use of force. Okay. Um, and back to the original question, you said that um, statistically uh, officers aren't using force that much um, nationwide or, but you work for a major metropolitan city type police area. You know, we're talking at, at least a million, um, I think coming in and out. Uh, um, we can say the Northern Texas area. Sure. And, um, you know, it's one of the top 15 departments in the nation uh, as far as size. So in that situation, what are you seeing statistically that backs up that 
police aren't using force nearly as much as the media may be pushing that we are? Well, I would say um, statistically, uh, the department uh, is a pretty large department that I work for. Uh, there might be uh, one to two, maybe, I mean, on average, I'm, I'm going to say two, maybe a busier day, four or five. Uh, slow day, maybe one. But on average, anywhere from, let's say, two or three at least a day that occur. But that range is with a lot of officers. Is it cool to say the approximate number? Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're talking close to 1,700 officers. And in a day, we might, out of all those officers, uh, the majority, I think it's like 60% or so in our departments in patrol. That's pretty consistent with most agencies. The majority of it's going to be patrol. Okay. But um, just a few a day, and those range from pointing a firearm to, you know, maybe using a, a, a taser. Okay. It's not, it's not, it's not as much as what most people would probably think. And most officers probably have to use force. And th- this is just kind of speculation, which I hate doing, but if because I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but average officer, maybe just a few times a year where they have to use force. Okay. So, and so people listening, uh, especially those, uh, even those in law enforcement, outside of law enforcement, though, um, qualification wise, like explain your role in use of force uh, throughout your career as far as sure. being an expert. So uh, <clears throat> when I got into training and instructing, it was honestly, it was just really something that somebody in the department said, hey, you might want to go take this class. And when I was down there, I met some of the other instructors and they go, hey, we think you'd make a good instructor. You want to try this? Go, sure. Sounds good. And I got into um, helping train uh, physical fitness and control tactics uh, for recruits and then for officers. And one thing that I found, and, and I, I really, I really dove into the physical fitness aspect and, and the kind of the holistic approach on that because in law enforcement at the time there there was kind of a gap there in terms of you know the the physical fitness part, you know how we stay in shape, how we take care of ourselves the emotional aspect, um, even nutrition. So I kind of really dove into that rabbit hole and partly because <clears throat> it was interesting and I was passionate about it. Something I've always been interested in, had a background in that. And then I learned that, uh, and believe control tactics, the foundation is physical fitness. We have to physically be able to do these tactics. So yes, as we age, we, we don't have the flexibility or mobility that we did. So we might have to utilize either different tactics or learn how to talk better. So, but the point is physical fitness is a foundation for control tactics and the the two are connected. So I really got into the, the physical fitness side and the control tactics side about the same time in actually teaching the skills. Um, And then that evolved into sort of the kind of an administrative role, which is weighing in on policy, actually looking at specific incidents is, are these incidents in line with what's being trained? And then that involved to a full-time position that I, I served at different ranks as, as the person uh, overseeing use of force stuff. Okay. And part of your duties um, doing the use of force stuff was keeping track of all the stats, uh, anything involving use of force. So you, you broke it down in a pretty interesting way to the point where I had you set up the the use of force stuff to come to my computer so I could see all sides of town. I knew what use of forces were being done, the reports, I could read them, and I could figure out um, 
and, and this is for other agencies looking to make their use of force stuff better. Um, me as an instructor at the time at the academy, basically what I would do is see all these use of forces throughout the city, and I'm looking and reading at what technique they use, if they use the technique we teach, if they don't. Um, if it's something we didn't teach, then I could say like, well, did it work? Like what made you do that? I could ask questions and it wasn't to grill the officer. It was to improve us. It was, uh, and that was the point. And, and that's what Buck told me. He's like, we're trying to make this better. So we're, your job as an instructor is to find holes in training and fill these holes. And so, um, that's what she said. And, uh, <laughs> caught myself. So, uh, and that's what I did in it. It did. It made me, in my own opinion anyway, it made me a better instructor and helped me figure out how to address the stuff we were already teaching. So it was like this continuous need to get better and, and make things improve without just trying to make shit up. That That's the only right, way I can right. put it. Because that drives me insane. Well, why don't we do this? And I'm like, it, right, I'm with you. based on what? Like, you just want to try something to try it. I want to try something because this guy used it in the field and it was effective. Like why was his technique effective? Why aren't we training that? You know, uh, the biggest one, the one that Jamie Johnson, the legend pointed out to me, he's like, are you taught to tackle? I'm like, no. And he's like, but you use it, right? Is that departmentally approved or trained? I'm like, no. He's like, but is it reasonable? It's like, well, yeah. He's like, and it works. Yeah. Well, why don't we teach it? should <laughs> we if we're going to teach people to take people down or we'd let people take them down so um this you know one of those things that just opened my eyes up and the way that you did that job and the way you invented that job uh with mad yeah. res- mad respect for that um you significantly improved how we look at use of force and the way that we train use of force at where we work so that's what I want other people to get is if they can do anything, I'm not saying they have to mirror exactly what you did, but listen to what he says and, and, you know, take what tools you need for yourself from what, from what Buck does. So, um, as you develop that, what, what all did that position, what did you keep track of? Um, gosh, a lot of stuff. Uh, so, but that particular position, there's, there was three main kind of, uh, uh, lenses that I had to maintain. One is training, one is policy, um, and then the other is the policy. So <clears throat> use of force policy. Okay. You yeah. said you said training policy policy. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You yeah. got to we got to correct that. So uh, <laughs> my mistake. Um, we're not correcting anything. So the I'm sorry, training, policy, and then the community side. Because mm-hmm. there is a community component with use of force. Because I when it's all about perspective in terms of our elevation so as we go up in elevation we have a broader view the position that i was in it was a very high elevation so it was it was something that gave me a view of okay i can see this piece this piece and this piece and then i can see okay those are those are connected pretty well there's a gap there so the training policy and community side trying to uh, merge those together and keep those those gears turning and connect as possible helps with use of force incidents, uh, not just in terms of what techniques work, what's, you know, how make sure that, you know, training is supported by policy and vice versa, but also what information, what can we get to the community to help them? Because this community police, we want the same thing. 
to me, law enforcement's real simple. It's about keeping the peace and ensuring public safety. Everybody wants that. So use of force is at the top of the list. I don't care who you are, whether you're a police officer or a civilian, citizen, doesn't matter. Use of force is at the top of the list that causing bad things to happen. And if we can get those unnecessary use of force numbers down, good things go up. So we, we all want to avoid the injuries, death, lawsuits. Those affect citizens as well because if a city's having to pay out, that can affect a citizen as well. And then damage trust. Of, of course, media plays into that, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. It's just media is media. For things to be interesting, there has to be a degree of conflict. I think I'm technically the media now. You, you kind of are. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is weird. I'm my own worst enemy. Yeah. So so those three pieces, at, at the, the deposition that I was in, um, that that was the elevation, which was how do we, how do we make sure these, these things are working together well? And then information is getting out to... The community side. Uh, yeah. So what was tracked, and for those that are listening that are in law enforcement, if they're in a position on their department as an instructor or use of force person, and they're not tracking data, remember this, you can't manage what you don't measure. So you got to, you got to measure this stuff, which is what works, what's causing injuries. We need to track injuries citizen officer injuries we need to track sides of town obviously officer information um the effectiveness of that force because just like in hindsight when i got out of the apartment there were no tasers so two two uh less lethal options that and i, I don't know for other cities because i don't track other cities but what i do know for the city i work for is pepper spray and batons the use of those have dramatically dropped. Taser has been prim- the primary go-to less lethal option. So what does that mean for training? It might mean, well, it's spending all this time on tool systems that we don't use that much. Let's, let's look at the data because you want training to, to be data-driven. You want policy to be based on case law that guides policy and a policy guides training. But we also want to look at the data which is where should we focus our resources? So let's look at the data. If it's if this is what we're using most of the time, let's spend most of our training on that. So that was that was uh, and that, that's some of the things that were tracked. Oh my gosh! I mean, it's when when you ask me, that, I'm trying. I'm, I'm literally imagining the spreadsheet, which takes up two computer screens of data. I've seen it, and I mean, we we track everything, and um, it helps. It helps in uh, uh, for uh, administration or command staff if they want to track good beer. Yeah, it's so good. If they want to track what's going on in their department, we have that information. Um, it's also we we work with professional standards unit uh, or that data can help them at the end of the year to release their report to uh, their their annual report on, on what use of force you know occurred the year prior. But I want to say this so. You talked about training and kind of a pet peeve of. Why don't we do this? Or we just can't make up training. So we, it ha- what is it, what guides training? So this is important to keep in mind. And I think for everybody with, with use of force, here's the, really, this is just law enforcement in general. This is the order of operations for our job. Everything, the foundation for our job, everything starts with case law. Supreme Court case, Texas is in the Fifth Circuit, so we got to watch that. Anything happening out of Texas, legislative updates, so that's the foundation. Policy has to be based on that. And it's it's going to change because 
Law enforcement is the executive branch. And legislation, that's who makes the rules and laws. Judicial system, they interpret them to see if they're constitutional within those boundaries. What drives legislation is public policy. People. So when people and public policy change, guess what? Our policies are going to change too. Right. So in a nutshell, we're in public administration. This is, this is government work. We work for the people. Whether we like that pill or not, that's the one we got to swallow. Yeah. So policy is going to change based on case law. So it's important that a department to remain, con- that's what we're going for, constitutional policing. We want it to be lawful within those boundaries. If we are not keeping up with case law, we're opening up a door to a lot of liability issues and, and some, some pretty m- big mistakes that could, that could ultimately cause some really bad things to happen. So case law drives policy, policy is what guides training. That's why there's some techniques we're probably just not going to do because they're not, they don't really fit in that, in that kind of funnel system. And then operations, our day-to-day stuff has to be based on training. We just can't watch a YouTube video and go, Hey, that looks like a cool way to handcuff somebody. Let me try that. Yeah. Has to be based on training. So that's the order of operations. So there's a lot of thought that goes into why we train the way we train. And I'm, we're not even talking about the human performance dynamics. That's a whole nother. Once you become an instructor, there is an art and science to how we train someone. So those motor programs and those responses are, are correct and ideal. So we just can't make up a scenario because it sounds cool. It has to have a logical progression and it has to have a result that is ideal with policy. So being an instructor, you got to know how the mind works, how the body works, and how to program those two for an ideal outcome. A lot goes into that. Mm-hmm. It's just not, I know you know this, it's just not, hey guys, uh, today, this, let's do this. This sounds like fun. Right. No, there has to be a logical progression. That being said, those instructors also have to be on top of policy. In my, in my training, if policies change, then I got to make sure my training mirrors what policy says. I just can't say, hey guys, punching somebody right in the nose, it's worked for me a long time ago. No policy says you should avoid this, but I'm going to teach y'all how to do it. We, it, we, just, we have to make sure our training is within the boundaries of policy. Right. So those that are listening that are in those roles, remember that you can't manage what you don't measure. And it all starts with case law. That guides policy. That guides training. That guides operations. But if, if those that are on departments in those roles, track that data. Track the use of force stuff. Not only... Can you shape training um, and make sure that you're allocating and and, uh, creating ideal training uh, based on the data? You also have stuff that can be shared with the public. Um, The city that I work for, one thing that I'm really proud of is between 2019 and 2020, despite a nationwide decrease in officer activity, I think it was, I think our department it was close to about a 60% decrease in arrest rate. And that's pretty consistent nationwide, what we saw in 2020. Um, we had, our department had a, about a 24% decrease in use of force incidents. And on the discipline side, this is kind of another lens to look at. Uh, our use of force disciplinary issues, uh, they were, we only, they weren't even in the top 10. In other words, we only had like less than, there was three. It didn't make the top 10. It stopped at three. So there could have been two or one. I don't know. It just was under three for an entire year. It did, yeah. So that it, it decreased. Here's what I'm getting at. 
even though officer activity went down uh, in our city, we're still doing our job. We're doing what's supposed to. However, we're doing our job, still making arrests, but our, our use of force per arrest ratio went down. In our department, we have a use of force review board. So with additional oversight, a use of force review board, we also have a, a civilian monitor group that doesn't report to the police department. They, they report actually to, uh, to the city. Okay. With their oversight, a use of force review board, and a chain of command, we had less disciplinary issues. We use less use of force per arrest rate. So all I'm getting at is the training makes a difference. What that equates to, for those that like, what does that mean to me in the field? It means this. We had six less deadly force encounters, 14 less officers, officer injuries, and I don't remember the number exactly for the citizen injuries. I want to say it was in the 20s. So we had less injuries and less deaths. Okay. So, I mean, big picture, if we can, if we can still do our job, and mitigate and reduce unnecessary use of force, it's better for everybody. So citizens, department, you name it. One of the things that I want to point out, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is uh, me trying to be outside looking in. You're going to have two, two beasts to, to, to feed on this. One is going to be the community. So I can't see a community not getting behind tracking stats. They, they want as much data as they can get. Sure. And justifiably so, especially when we're talking about use of force. So for a, a department that's not tracking those stats and they're wondering, should I like start doing this? Um, that is only going to improve the trust between you and the community, in my opinion. So obviously it's what's going on with what you're doing. And then the other beast is going to be the police side. And you know how cops are. Oh, you're just trying to find more ways to hem me up. But from what you're telling me, and, and we haven't had this discussion, but um, from what you just said, we're actually helping our guys without getting anybody. We're getting less people in trouble. So if anybody even internally that works with us and is like, you know, it's bullshit that the department's tracking all this stuff, they're just trying to find ways to fire us. No, it's it's... It, it's like, you know, taking your cell phone away from your teenage daughter. Like, they're pissed off at you at the beginning. They hate you, even. Right. But it, it was for a bigger picture that is working. It's helping people out. Is, it, that, is that fair? It, yes. It, it comes down to that elevation. Um, and in certain positions and roles in a department, it, it allows us a higher elevation. And um, here's what I'll say. The trust thing that you said, that's a big deal because it's it, it, as trust goes up, between the agency and the community, use of force actually goes down. So one of the, one of the things that came out of John Jay College and the National Initiative is they looked at um, and did surveys with communities, and they showed that there's a, there's a connection between trust and use of force. And I know you know uh, Sir Robert Peel. Anybody in law enforcement who did history of policing, you had to learn Sir Robert Peel, the police yeah. are the wait, communities of police and police are community. Yes. One of the things, this is 1800 stuff. Nothing new. So even Sir Robert Peel, even back then, he said that when the police are trusted by the community, the need to use force decreases. Holy crap. Wow. That hasn't changed. So here's what I'm saying. Whether whether it's from a citizen view, a police officer point of view, um, it's, it's the same thing. If we, if, if trust 
in the community, if, the, if, if community members trust that we're going to treat them right, even if we got to handcuff people and take them to jail, if they trust that we're going to treat them with, with dignity and respect, guess what happens? The likelihood that people fight, run, and try to drive away in a car, those all cause bad things to happen. That stuff goes down. So the, the use of force side track those that those agencies in art track that data because part of police legitimacy and legitimacy is how we view view one's right to use power foundation is trust if we have data and we can share that with the community that transparency that's the foundation that us being willing to be vulnerable and say hey here's the numbers there's nothing to hide yeah our trust goes up and the community recognize that and the likelihood that we to use force will trickle out through the community that helps in the, in the long run with the department and the police side, I've been that guy and, you know, officers, and I get it because I, being an officer and I was in patrol for about seven years, I get it, which is I'm out here doing my job. Don't you guys sitting in with, you know, higher up bars and stars, don't you have anything better to do than nitpick how I'm doing my job? You know, there's a lot of risk out here. I'm just trying to be safe and you're worried about, you know, I didn't do this or I didn't do that correctly. Right. Well, Here's, here's the pill that we all got to swallow. This is public administration. It's government work. We work for the people. When the legislation changes, it's going to affect us. And here's where I'm going with it. One of the cases um, happened in 1978. It's uh, Manel versus City of New York, I think, Public Administration Department of New York. That case established, it's a Supreme Court case, that established organizational liability for government agencies. What does that mean? It means this, some of the language that we've all heard, failure to train, failure to supervise, not following policy, those aren't made-up terms. Those come from court cases. Manel liability or Manel case is probably the biggest one. In other words, on the administrative side, if I review an incident, yes, there's probably about 10 things that went right. But the one thing that maybe they they did something outside of policy, I have to address it. Case law requires that I do that because if I don't, then not only am I not following a constitutional police model, but I'm opening up myself and the city for liability. It's not a knock on the officer. It's just that's the field that we work in. It's guided by case law. So when we look at stuff, um, whether it be use of force or, you know, vehicle pursuits or whatever the case is, interacting, if there's policy violations, we have to address those. So I had somewhere else I was going with that. Um, But part of the message there is that data um, if, if those agencies that don't track that data, I highly encourage them to consider doing that just because they can help guide them internally, department-wise. But it also is, is something that can be used and shared with the community to, main, to establish, if it's not there, but definitely maintain and develop trust. Because yeah. as trust goes up, use of force goes down. So I don't care who you are. If you're out in the field or you're sitting behind a desk or you're, you live in the city, that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, let's say the officer skates by because the supervisor or higher up, the bars and stars, ignore the, the case law and the policy. Well, if you had trust, you just lost it with the community. And, yeah, you may have gained it with the police, with your people internally, but now you're creating an us versus them uh, scenario, and that's yeah. only going to make things worse. And that's what I try to explain to other officers that get a little heated when it comes to, no, it's just ways for them to fuck with me. And I'm just like, I, I, 
I get it. Cops hate change. I, I don't know what, I don't sure. think it's just cops, but yeah. um, in police work, we hate change. And then I'm, well, can I add something yeah, to that? Yeah, yeah. So this kind of goes, now we're going down this kind of philosophical, emotional intelligence perspective rabbit hole, which I, I like love. It. Why do we hate change? Fear. Because if I'm good at something and I have to do things differently, then I may not be good at it anymore. Right. Nobody likes that. And right. then that causes shame. If now I'm making mistakes with, some, with something new, now it's embarrassing. I'm not that guy that knows what I'm doing. So change, that's where some of that fear is. So me, I, I would encourage people, myself included, embrace change. That's how we get better. That's how we improve. Um, it's it's not a, it's not an easy thing to do sometimes. But um, the uh, oh yeah, that's what it was. With the data, the uh, department that I work for, one of the things that we did, we developed a uh, it was a citizen awareness type class for use of force, and yeah. I honestly. When the suggestion came up, I can't take credit for it. Somebody else's suggestion. When it came up, I thought, okay, we can do this. You know, it's it's probably not going to really take off and not going to be that popular. It blew up. Yeah, people loved it. Yep. We invited um, citizens, whether it be from you know community members, um, community leaders, faith based groups, uh, business interest groups, just just everyday citizens were welcome to attend. Yeah, and um, they got to see the training facility. The resource, and, and we take it for granted. We work for an agency that that has uh, top-notch training facility. So, and we're used to that, so we're spoiled. But it, citizens got to see, hey, this is where our tax dollars are going. I didn't realize you guys took this training so seriously. I didn't realize you guys did this. And one of the things that we did in that class is we talked about policy, why our policy is written the way it is, and, and, and understand that it, we don't make this up. This is coming from law. Oh, okay, so you guys, you, you are following a consultation constitutional policing model this is lawful okay cool this so that makes me feel better and the other thing we talked about is training we shared with them here's what we do in our department we do over four times as much control tactics training for recruits than what's required by the state and almost twice as much for firearms training so most people coming down there they go wow so you guys are doing that much and then we talked about what we did for in-service, the post-recruit stuff, which is here's what we have. Here's our continued education. Certainly, we have to maintain standards, get training in, in every every two years in our training cycle. We have to do that, but we also offer classes that are wellness-related, fitness classes. I think uh, for a long time, we even had some yoga classes. Yeah, uh, we I tried fought, it. Yeah, so we had some emotional intelligence folded into some of the leadership courses that we offered. Um, so, And it comes down to this. Once somebody finishes the academy, cool. What are we going to do to uh, keep keep them develop those skills sharp? Because um, training, 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 can't have enough of it. it. But it's hard to do, especially for patrol, because the the calls for service really drive that. So it's difficult to get a large group of people out of patrol to go do additional training. And if we don't practice a lot of things, especially use of force, those are perishable skills. So... It comes down to this. So training, we looked at what are some things that we can do to supplement, not just stuff required by the state, but to supplement those skills, communication skills, de-escalation skills, wellness for the officer. Why is that important? Ask yourself, what kind of cop do you want responding to the call either you or your family member make? The one who's sleep deprived, drinking all the energy drinks, who's stressed out and their personal life is in shambles. They don't take care of themselves health-wise. Do you want that officer or the one who's had a good night's sleep? 
who has a high level of emotional intelligence, who's calm, who's able to see different points of view, um, who's not stressed out. I know what I would want. So that we have to look at what kind of police officer do, do I want my family responding when we call? And so that's something that we looked at in terms of training. Here's what we can provide to maintain that officer wellness, whether it's fitness or emotional. So I don't know how we got down that rabbit hole, but that's, Oh, you started going down, um, letting the citizens know in the use of force. Oh, yeah, yeah. So in in, in that particular class, and I'm kind of wrapping it up on that, but uh, in that particular class, um, what I was impressed with was we just took it for granted that, oh, this is is just how we operate. And when the citizens saw that, they loved it. They were so grateful. They got to do some scenarios. They they got to do some training in our little kind of uh, video game type system that they can interact with. They did some drills. We allowed, uh, they would sign a waiver and then they could do like a, uh, an actual training scenario with an instructor in a protective suit um, to just to see how challenging it is just to maintain uh, somebody's hands. It was very eye-opening. And right. they, all, they all said the same thing. Wow, that was, that was tough. I didn't realize how tough that was. I go, it is. Under pressure and stress, it's really, really challenging to try to think your way through those unless you've had training on it or do those on a regular basis. And I got to help out with some of those. And one of the things that I noticed is the ones that come in with the absurd amount of confidence. Yeah. Did the worst. Yeah. And you see the light bulbs go off with them. Once that heart rate goes up, things change. Yes. And the ones that would on the fence, didn't know if they want to do it. They wanted to see it first. They want to see somebody else go through it. And then those were the ones that I got a lot of, really good feedback from and they did decent at the you know for for somebody that doesn't have any training or anything they they would do a lot better at the scenarios than most and uh, again i think it goes into the the social skills the emotional intelligence side of things they they would try to walk that path in the right but the ones that came in real eager and overconfident in my opinion um they thought that their physical skills were going to get them through everything and that's just not how it, it works. It doesn't work that way, yeah. Um, one of the things, and this sparked in my head while we were talking, and I don't know why I never thought of this before, but one thing that I'd like to add to that citizen use of force course is internal affairs role. Because I think one of the biggest distrusts of police forces is an internal affairs investigation. Why? Because it's their own people. That's the way they look at it. But if they are shown, they are dictated by policy and constitution and case law that those are the two things they need them we need the most trust in in my opinion is right because it's how it always well i want you to give that investigation over the state police or the fbi or whoever it is some outside agency well look here's the guidelines here's why it's it's pretty rock solid and i I don't what do you think about that i think it's a great idea and and the reason i say that because i've been involved with community engagements for years and the role that I'm currently in, it's it's they're they're pretty frequent, and that topic comes up a lot, which is when an officer does something, whether it be display criminal behavior, violate policy, why aren't they immediately arrested, or why 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 does thing why do things occur this particular way, and uh, and, and again, I think we kind of take it for granted because we're on the inside and we see those processes and we're used to them, and you're right that perspective of well if I call to complain or if, if internal affairs, which is your own group of people looking at stuff, yeah, I don't really trust that because it's the police, police and the police. Yeah. However, 
when we explain here's what God's internal affairs, it's it, it, being on the inside. I don't want to get called by internal affairs. Right. That's not where I want to be. So I, I think most officers are going to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. We don't look forward to that or we don't go, ah, oh, that's, that, that's, that's my buddy there. They're going to take care of it. It doesn't yeah. work like that because what guides that is not just Texas government code. Uh, we also have, there's case laws. There's back to the Manel liability court. I'm sorry, case. Um, it, it is, uh, the professional standards unit, it, it's serious business and they take that role serious and it's, it's a good thing. And now the other side of the coin is they are, they, it's a very objective unit. It, it, there's a lot of rules and policies in, in, in constitutional law that's going to guide that stuff, whether it's state or federal government. That being said, um, it's also the other side of the coin, which is when they do look at stuff, quite often they realize, hey, okay, this complaint, sometimes complaints come in, it's not what they said. And that's what I like about the body cameras. Being in a supervisor and administrative role, oh, yeah. I've cleared up more complaints with a body camera. So even officers go, oh, I don't want to wear this. It's going to do more good than it is harm. Yeah. Um, it's a good thing. And then so I think when people understand that, they feel a bit more comfortable. However, the agency that we, we work for, They've, uh, the city decided to go a step further, and there's a civilian group that doesn't even report to the police department. So if people, if there's still a trust issue, they can, on our department, they can route it through that civilian group. Not all cities have that. I think probably most most of the bigger cities, probably top 20 cities, I'd say the majority of them probably do because I've looked at data for about, I think, the top 25, and I think most of them do. Okay, so, so been, with a civilian use of, that's what it is. Well, for. I'm sorry, it's a civilian oversight board. They just, they might, it's kind of broad spectrum. They might look at uh, complaints coming in. They look at departmental procedures and policies, make sure that we are following our own procedures and policies. They look at uh, how investigations are run. They might look at a use of force incident to make sure that that we are viewing it with the proper lens, whether that be legal or, or, or policy lens. So they kind of have a broad view of everything okay so for me outside looking in as an officer perspective what qualifies them what what is what is required because if somebody else says okay we'll make one but is there any qualifications that we're keeping these these can, people bound by? i can tell you a little bit the short answer is yes if you're asking me what those are i would say i honestly don't know um that's where that city's going to have to do their homework i know with ours <coughs> With ours, um, the 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 person that is the head of that group, the oversight board, I'm sorry, the oversight uh, monitor's office, they actually have a, a, a law background. I think uh, they were, I think they were an attorney somewhere. They worked for different law enforcement agencies providing oversight. <coughs> they have another person that's part of that that has a, a law enforcement background, I think in kind of like white collar crime. And then another person that had administrative background that is learning the departmental procedures and they're getting all the departmental training. Okay. So this is, this is separate from a civilian use of force committee. Is that- we don't have a civilian use of force committee. We, we have um, in our department and excuse me. Oh, you're good. Well, I, yeah. I see the problem. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yes. So in our department, uh, we have a civilian oversight um uh, group and I, I don't even know if committee is the right word, but it's 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 an office <coughs> that have several civilians that provide broad oversight from use of force to IED investigations. I gotcha. You gonna be all right? I am. This yeah. will go away in a minute. Okay. 
This might help. I got you. Yeah. So um, we're going to take a short little break from this conversation to introduce you to 903 Brewers, uh, the Great Brewery Bake Off. So this, I, I saw this beer. Me and Buck, we're nerds. We like uh, crazy beers. And I found this one. It had basically wedding cakes all over it. And he he told me he was bringing a stout over. So we were, I'm trying to keep the stout theme here, sir. Uh, this is a 12.3%. Uh, it's a one pint. And the flavor palette on this one is, it is, let me see here. Flavors of buttery rich toffee milled into creamy toasted hazelnut resulting in a sweet and nutty swirl that complements the rich and roasty notes of dark chocolate. That sounds Man, amazing. Well said. Uh, I did not write that. That's on the can. So uh, cheers, sir. You, oh, you poured your drink. Uh, I already glass. poured yeah, your head yeah, a drink. Yeah, smart man. Is it good? It is good. It's right. honestly, it's not as sweet as I thought, which is good. I didn't want it. I didn't want well, it. yours is different. Yours aged three years. This is straight out the, oh. straight out the fridge. Yeah, it's really good. Oh yeah, look at that color. Um, oh yeah, that smells yeah. good too. Oh yeah, I'm okay. I'm in. So yeah. uh, those watching, let's see. 903, if you're watching this, hey, I'm looking for sponsors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where, where are they out of? Are they Texas? I think 903 is Texas. Oh, okay. well, 903, that's probably an area code. Um, anybody know? Let's see here. I think it is Texas. Sherman, Look, Texas. Yeah. yeah, 903. Could be a sponsor. It uh, could yeah. be. Yeah, I'm down. Uh, Sherman, Texas. I, I try to get TX all the time because, I, I mean, I've got TX stuff everywhere. Oh, yeah. But I legitimately, you know. Love TX whiskey. Uh, me and McMeans had that TX Select Barrel on here. How was it? Oh my god, that's their best one. Really? That's their best. It, that's just my opinion. So it's okay. So this is a, the weird part about that. It's 127 proof, 1.2 or it's 127.9. Yeah. And when you drink it though, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. Doesn't yeah. feel like it. So that's how I knew it was going to be a good one. And yeah, real big, big. I just totally unplugged my headphones. One second. Santa back. So that's what I was kind of torn with: beer, bourbon. Because I've and we talked about it the last couple of years. I've been getting into bourbon, so my yes. bourbon collection has grown oh, quite yeah. a bit. Oh. But but I thought beer would be yeah either one. It's you're not gonna. It's it's a win win. Sticking to stouts, we burp a lot less too. That's the other thing I've learned with having beer on here. Never knew that. Um, I, I, that's just my experience. I don't know if that's true, but well, I, I don't. I personally don't. But when I'm going to be hyper aware of that. Yeah, when, I do burp. when I drink the IPAs or especially the um, the lactose stuff, like the, uh, the, yeah. the hazy stuff, like I burp a lot. So it's, people don't like hearing you burp. They don't like hearing you chew. They don't like hearing. There's a lot of stuff that they don't like hearing. So I can uh, see that. Yeah, it's yeah. annoying when you're in your car and it's all this. It's just enveloped you. So. But all right, let's get back on topic. Sorry, guys. Well, I, I got something. Oh, what do you have? Can we take a bathroom break? Oh, we can. Yeah, yeah. You got a pee already? I do. Yeah. Oh, that. Must, I'm a lot older than you. I was going to say yeah. that enlarged prostate, uh, all that stuff. You didn't. Yeah, all that. There yeah, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. We're going to take a short commercial break. All right, we're back, and that was at one twenty-two forty-five. Uh, we had to take a quick bathroom break, so. Um, back to where we were, sir. Uh, we were on bourbons and uh, stouts, and yes. then we we had deviated from the the community uh, advisory board. 
And so you said there's there's use it's a civilian oversight. Civilian oversight. Office, yeah. Okay, so you have those. That's that involves the, some sort of legal background, um, which is nice. Um, and they don't just touch use of force. They're looking at all things. So right. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. You said there's three. There's three partitions to that, though, right? You have the one that we just talked about, and is there, there's a use of force review board. Yeah, the use of force review board is primarily sworn personnel. We have people from um, from training to uh, executive uh, level um, and administrative people. We have uh, somebody with a CID or investigative background, and then we have several members from patrol because we want it, we want a broad spectrum. When we look at a use of force incident. Not only does a use of force incident get reviewed by that officer's chain of command, but if it if 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 a use of force incident, if they look at that and go, mm, I think there's a problem here. Not only is their chain of command going to look at it, but our board, I think we have fourteen or I think it's fourteen people on it. We could be fifteen. So, and most of those are sworn. We have one person that is uh, from the civilian oversight board that's on that's on the use of force review board. So, but it's the majority is sworn, and we want that patrol component because for a couple of reasons we want we want the board to be viewed as legitimate. And if the majority of the department is patrol, we want that patrol component on there because we want their feedback. Is this because we can look at something and go, yeah, it's kind of within training. Or if it's a clear policy violation, that's a different story. We're all going to go outside of policy. But if we're looking at something, well, yeah, that was trained this. It, and sometimes in law enforcement, culture is what things are and policy is what things should be. There's, there's generally going to be a gap because in our career field, um, things are learned often in the field. We might go, oh, this is a better way to do it, or here's here's a safer way to approach this. And it might take a little while for that to catch up to policy. In other occupational fields, uh, usually it's the opposite. Usually, oh, here's our new policy, and then culture will catch up to it. So quite often in our career field, culture, the reason where I'm going with that is if we look at something and go, yeah, we kind of trained that, but I haven't seen that before. And we had that patrol component. Oh, yeah, this is this is how we've been doing this in the field. It's safer. It works better. And we go, oh, okay, that's good. That's We need your opinion on that. So um, our use of force review board is in addition to the chain of command. We look at, we do kind of a cursory review of all use of force incidents. Um, we don't dive too deep into those. Uh, it would be a full-time unit, which would be great if we had one. Some agencies actually have a full-time uh, like a force review board. Um, our department and a lot of big cities, they definitely have like critical incident review boards or, or uh, uh, units that investigate officer involved type shootings. Um, so we definitely have that kind of full-time unit, but just for regular use of force, I'd love to see a full-time force review board. Okay. But uh, yeah, so we got, it's, it's broad spectrum. We have people in different positions from throughout the department on that board, we look at all use of force incidents, a cursory review. Sometimes we go, hey, let's look at this. Most of, China, uh, most of the time, the chain of command caught the issue or whatever. But we also, because I say this, and the people that are listening, it's we, we remember, and, and everybody out there listening, especially if you're in supervisory or leadership roles, remember, what gets rewarded gets repeated. So our use of force review board, we're not, we're not always, it's not the lens of, what went wrong? We're also looking for what went right. Let's reach out to that officer because it's a use of force incident. I mean, it's 
It's not like it is on TV. Um, they're very dynamic. Uh, they evolve very quickly, and quite often uh, we're reacting. There's not a lot of time to actually stop and think, wait a second, should I, you know what, let me try to grab the left hand instead of the right hand. We don't have that luxury when things are dynamic. So we have to take that into consideration. What What is reasonable under those circumstances, What you know, especially from the officer's point of view, what, what facts did they know at the time? Because I can always watch a video. Yeah. And go, oh, I would have done it differently. That's not how we, we look at use of force incidents. So um, I want to interrupt you. Yeah. Because you and I, as officers, understand that. Community, looking outside looking in, you should be trained that. You had the training. You should know better. You should this. You should that. You know, you you guys are wasting time training over here when you, you obviously didn't spend enough time learning how to handle this. Why did you have to go to your gun? Why did all these why, 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 whys? And, and it is from the luxury of hindsight, but we're subject to that ridicule. Like, sure. I have, I have a response. That so I want to hear it. I do. And, and yeah. so that's kind of the point that I want to get to while you're on that topic, because mm-hmm. internally, like you said, you know, we have patrol officers on that use of force review board for um, legitimacy. And it's not legitimacy with outside the community, with the community. It's legitimacy within the own department, your own department. And I want to make that distinguish or that the distinction sure. for people listening. Like that's why they have patrol officers on there. The, the legitimacy, you, you need the bottom up at, to, to, to buy in and, and you need it on both sides. You need the community to buy in as well. Yeah. But when we were talking legitimacy, I wanted to clear that part up. And then, uh, yeah, so what, what's your response to the okay, community so, side? Uh, so I'm going to start with kind of a broad, and then I'm going to get, and you're going to completely forget what you asked me when I start talking. But then uh, when I get to the answer, you're going to go, oh, man, that was cool how that happened. It's the Tarantino <laughs> yeah, effect. I like it. Which is it always starts over here. Yep. You start and, at the and end. Then, and then you jump around, and you're like, what the hell's going on? And you forget about where you started. And then when you get to the end, you're like, man, that was really cool. That's so, why he's so a genius. Have a sip. Right. Get ready. Here we go. It is this on the community side and trust and it's internal too. We have to, I say this, the community aspect is certainly important um, for the patrol officer. It, it's definitely important. Uh, however, their field of focus is generally going to be responding to calls. Uh, so they're definitely, they have the opportunity to interact with the community every, every call they're dispatched to in between those calls. But their main focus, and I get it, is, hey, I got to get to this call. I got to respond for service. And, and if maybe I have to make this arrest or maybe I can. Sometimes it's I'm talking to the kid who just ran away from home trying to give him some good advice. It's it's all over the place. So their ability to slow things down and take the time to, you know, try to either seek out training or look at do things a little different. It's a little bit ch- more challenging. And we have to we we have to we can't forget about the patrol we, that to me. That is the backbone. Everything what we do supports patrol. So, because we have the luxury to, and especially at my rank, I, I, I can I get to sit behind a desk a lot. I can come up with all kinds of cool ideas. I can look at things and say, oh, this ought to work, this ought to work. But I got to remind myself, why am I doing this? Because I'm doing this because those folks out in patrol, they're going quite often, sometimes just, just call to call. They don't have that luxury to look at and evaluate. So, I, number one, I need their feedback. I need to. I need to stay. I, I need to maintain that pulse of patrol. Um, and, and we got to be. We got to be mindful of that as we move up in rank. Um, it can definitely get challenging because we often get into silos. But we got to find a way to make sure we got a sense of what's going on in patrol. So, back to the community. Is that thing. why you moved? 
Yes, um, it is. Well, honestly, I loved where I was at, and I think I was pretty good at it. It wasn't as challenging. Certainly, I, there was a lot of work to be done, and I, I loved doing it. And every now and then, there'd be a new challenge, but but it was just timing when when the opportunity to come to, to go back to patrol came up. Um, part of it, you know, I just finished my bachelor's degree, um, so Congrats. I had some extra time. Thank you. And then just thinking about, you know, man, just being back out part of a team, dealing with the community, being back in this leadership role and connected with people. Again, I'm a people person. So I was like, oh man, yeah, this, it just felt right. I'm in the, I'm in near the last few years of my career and just kind of getting back to where it started. Don't I say just, that. Don't say that. Why not? You can't leave. Oh. Ever. I mean, you guys be fine. So here we go. Sorry, I distracted you. So the community stuff and the trust stuff, it is this. It is maintenance. It is always maintenance. I call it tightening the bolts. So people that have, are in those positions, that have those opportunities to slow down, they're not under pressure. Like patrol, they may not have those opportunities all the time. They definitely have opportunities to engage with the public on a regular basis. But trying to think about how can we improve? How can we do that? It's more challenging a patrol because they need to think about what's going on in that moment. They're going from this call to that call to that call. So those of us, especially in leadership positions, we got to make sure we're we're tightening the bolts where we can. Community relations. When those comments come up, well, you guys were training that. Why don't you do this? Why don't you just shoot the leg instead? All these these things that come up, and it's normal things that come up. On the surface, okay, kind of sounds like a valid argument. Sure, I had training on that, but. When we trust each other, and this is personal relationships, this is professional relationships, this is organizational relationships. When we trust each other and we trust that why you're doing what you're doing is for good reasons, those questions start to kind of fade away because they go, oh, you know what, you're human or this happens or that happens. I get it. I understand. And I trust what you're telling me. So here's where I'm going with it. When we can do the maintenance and when those, I call them, these are when those conversations occur, when emotions are high, logic is low. So if I'm in a community engagement, I have to recognize I may see the world differently. You see the world differently. Everybody sees the world differently, and it's okay. By no means does it mean because I have a badge and gun that my view is more valid. That's a mistake. Can't think that. Um, so when I listen to the community side, I have to recognize, okay, you know what? I see a little differently, but what they're saying, I, I see where they're coming from. This makes sense. I have to be willing to listen and acknowledge what they're saying. And if I am, it doesn't mean that I have to listen to listen, but not, not listen to respond. That's what most of us do. Most of the time, like you're probably thinking of the next question you're going to ask me right now. No, you're listening to listen, so you're doing it right. Okay, good. So you know where I learned of, that from? Uh, yeah. So mo- when we have these conversations, we really have to listen to listen and and. People know when you're full of shit, when you're not full of shit. So if, if it's, if this isn't your wheelhouse to, I mean, to be genuine and be willing to be vulnerable and talk to those people, don't do it. If, if you're comfortable being that person saying, you know what, I'm okay with those uncomfortable conversations. I'm okay with those challenging conversations Then give it a shot. People appreciate that. Once we have those conversations and I listen, I go, you know what? I see where you're coming from. It makes sense. How about this? Let's get together and talk again. We, when we have those initial conversations, quite often, and I'm going to say men are, are the worst at this, we want to solve problems. And quite often, when we hear problems, we go, hey, here's the answer. Yeah. 
that doesn't work. My wife we, will agree with you. Yeah, my wife will too. <laughs> so we have to work through those emotions. And sometimes I'm the recipient. I'm, sometimes I have to be willing to go, man, I'm receiving a lot of frustration, I'm, I, it, but I got to be mindful. It's not, a, it's not an attack on me personally. It's an attack on maybe there's a historical component or an experience component, or this is what they've seen. And based on their experiences, this is real to them. So I can't say, oh, you know, that's a bunch of bullshit or that doesn't make sense. Here's the statistics. Here's the numbers. Nobody gives a shit about statistics when emotions are high. Nobody cares that things can be worse if things are bad. <laughs> Telling somebody, oh, it could be worse. They don't care about that. If things are bad, they don't care if it can be worse. Right. So I have to be mindful of all that when I have those conversations. And then after I have those initial, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two. We, we talk, we being somebody from the law enforcement uh, side and the community side. But we have to, that us versus them, we got to be careful with that. We have to look at this as how are we mutually going to work together to achieve this same goal. First thing is we got to work through those emotions. We got to work through some frustration. Get it? There's some gaps. Once you recognize or the other, the other one group recognizes the other group is willing to listen and acknowledge that, okay, I trust this person. Cool. Now we can start actually talking about what can I do what can you do and what can we do together to work towards those goals? These are maintenance conversations. These have to go on on a regular basis. Not just when something bad happens. Correct. Yeah. So one of the most important things about healthy relationships that makes sure that, 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 that promotes a healthy relationship is proximity. So if I'm not regularly in talking to that person, seeing that person, social media doesn't count. But if I'm not regular talking to that person on a regular basis, those relate, we, we all, citizens, police, all the same, we start getting into silos. And when we don't see each other, talk to each other, we fill in the gaps. We fill in the gaps with the worst possible scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, you ready for the, the wham, bam, all the way back to the beginning? Here we go. I just took a sip. I'm ready. All right. <laughs> me too. Let me take a sip. All right. <laughs> I love it. It is this. This isn't something to be said. At the beginning, this is something to be said after we work through those emotions. So if somebody's telling me, well, you did this, you were trained on this, and this officer didn't do that, or you were trained on this, or your department's trained on this, and it didn't happen. So I got a problem with that. Cool. That's valid. We can work through that. Once we get to trust each other, here's what I'm going to say. You were trained on the Pythagorean theorem in high school. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's geometry. But you don't remember it. Should I hold that? I, should I hold you accountable for getting something learned in high school? You were trained on it, but you forgot it. Cops are human. Mm-hmm. We don't remember everything that we're trained on unless we do it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And for those people that have kids, I always talk about this with citizen groups. Hey, well, this cop did this. This cop did that. Well, they... I know y'all train on that, but the way he did or she did this, that, that doesn't seem like it's in training. So it seems like a training doesn't work. My response to that is, how many people have kids? And those that have kids, especially when they get in their teens, you'll have plenty of experience. I, then the next question is, okay, of those of you that have kids, how many of your kids have made a bad grade on a report card? Almost everybody's going to raise their hand. My next question is, are you going to give up on your kids now? They had a bad grade. Do you give up on all kids? Because of the one bad grade. I'm not giving up on cops. 
Yeah, there's mistakes. But there's so many there's so many good things that we do. We have a tendency, we as humans, we have a tendency to focus on the mistakes. So when 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 people tell me that, I mean I'm not it might come across as sarcastic. I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but it's it's a serious thing. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, sometimes we go through training. Some officers make mistakes. It goes against training. Like yeah. we don't give up. We keep training because everybody, you know, I, we, most of us are getting it. But the, here's here's the big picture. This is what I'm getting at. Is this training? How do we how do we get more training? The majority of most departments are going to be patrol. That's often our biggest challenge. How do we take people off the street so we can get regular training? I think. Oh, what's the guy's name that wrote Extreme Leadership? podcast navy seal guy um not jocko jocko jocko, jocko yeah so jocko. so yeah. so that i read that book and, and one of the things that he talked about i think it was in that book but for 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 us to maintain skills uh, i think he had mentioned and i don't know if there's if this is a made-up statistic or if there's an actual study that we should be 20 percent of our time should be training yeah i don't know how to unless we expand the department and then put more resources and funding towards training, it's going to be really difficult to get patrol officers to train 20% of the time. But here's what I'm going to say. Mistakes are going to happen. We want to mitigate those as much as we, we can, and we want to have community conversations on a regular basis, not just conversations, but collaborations. I, I got something to add to that yeah. on mistakes. And this goes back to my my BJJ training. Mm-hmm. Um, I never learned more... In jiu-jitsu, I'm just using this as an example, but and in life, but I've never learned more in jiu-jitsu than when I screw up, when I make a, a monumental mistake in in that game. And I can tell you, those mistakes are a hundred times more valuable than the successes I had, where I, I didn't learn I didn't learn anything from mastering something really fast. I I, I I learned 10 times more because I screwed up. And if we give, and you tell me your thought on this, but if we've got enough trust to allow mistakes to happen, I I get mitigating mistakes, but for officers and especially as being an instructor, like I kind of encourage mistakes in a way, not I'm with you. You know what I mean? I'm not saying go out and accidentally shoot somebody. That's not what I mean. That's an extreme, but the, the dumb little mistakes, like, and get called out for it and, and learn, you know, that's uh, the, f- so this is, this is, I'm settling in because I love this topic. Very passionate about this. This is a leadership thing for me. Um, people do what people see. All right. And we have to, those in leadership positions and I, all these quotes that I give, they're not my own. i I read so many books, listen to so many. We get speak. it. You're really smart. I get, no, I, I just remember <laughs> things. Other people are smart. I just remember what they say. That's my, that's my yeah. little, illusion that is your gift i'm not that smart believe it or not you don't have a photographic memory but you're damn close so with the leadership modeling the behavior we expect from others here's here's one thing that i've learned um is when i look at an officer's actions um it's we have to be careful we got we got to we're not we're not the best at this in this career field because of what we do in law enforcement we we generally focus on criminal behavior which by the way criminal behavior is a symptom of underlying root causes like socioeconomic, mental health, drug addiction. So you're saying so, it's not race related? 
Correct. So oh. we this is there's underlying issues that drive criminal behavior. And if you want to find out what's what's going on in in a community or neighborhood, what the issues are, ask it. That's the cop that works there. They're just as frustrated as the citizens that live there. They know because the cops know what some of these problems are, but because their 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 duties are bound by law, how they respond to those issues is the symptom, which is criminal behavior. So sometimes it might be making an arrest, which the reality is that doesn't always help the person with drug addiction addiction or socioeconomic or mental health issues. We get it. I, I don't know how to fix that. That's, That's why a, discretion is such an important tool. It is. So back to the leadership thing, it is this. I, I said this quote earlier, but what gets rewarded gets repeated. So we have to be mindful of that. That's why I'm really big on, I, I wrote a commendation this week. I try to if I see something that's, you know, I try to do that on a regular basis. So those in leadership positions, we have to, when we look at, and I like what you said, for, it's, it, I don't want to say promoting mistakes, but understanding that mistakes will happen, and that's how we get better. We often, sometimes our biggest lessons are wrapped in our biggest problems. So when we unpack those, there's the lesson. So we have to look at that. It's not necessarily, and I'm very mindful of the word you, when I deal with officers and especially disciplinary issues, I try to say this behavior, not you, because most of the people, not most, I mean, everybody I deal with, they're good people. They got lives outside of here. They're good people, good intentions, but they make mistakes. So one of those filters is, what am I looking at? Am I looking at a mistake of the mind or a mistake of the heart? Mistake of the heart, there's intent. They knew they weren't supposed to do this. They did it out of malice, maybe anger. Those are the ones, I can't excuse those. Those are going to be the ones where it, it might be the one mistake, but if it's a mistake of the heart, that might be the one that gets all the days off or maybe you know it could lead to an indefinite or termination. Um, certainly, if, if it's an egregious mistake of the mind, it could lead to that. However, most mistakes of the mind are officers just we got 10,000 things and filters and policies we're trying to follow we might forget to do this or we forgot to submit copy number three when we submitted this particular packet most things are mistakes of the mind so when I look at it that way when I deal with disciplinary issues and as a people person that was probably one of the hardest things that one of the harder pills to swallow which is oh god if I if I if I go into this disciplinary situation people aren't going to like me that was a tough one. Somebody gave me some advice, and it was this. If you care about the people that you lead, you got to address those issues. It's like having kids. If your kid is doing something that's going to get them hurt, in trouble, if you really care about your kid, you're going you're gonna to address that. We're going to correct that. So if we care about those that we lead, we have to have those difficult conversations. Most of the time, it's a mistake of the mind. And when I approach it that way, we're dealing with adults. Just because rank doesn't mean... I, I go up in rank and I'm more mature than somebody yeah. or I'm smarter. That's not true at all. Some of the smarter people will never promote because they're happy. With it. it's, it's, it's Some of the best knowledge is out there at some of the lowest ranks. So that doesn't equate to maturity and knowledge. So when I approach it that way, that I'm talking about this behavior, and here's why. Because I'm in the same boat as you and every other officer. I want to get through this career with my career intact and my health intact. And I care about those that I lead. So if I see behavior, whether it be outside of training, outside of policy, or something that can cause something bad to happen, or something unprofessional, whatever the case is, 
I'm told I'm far more comfortable in those conversations now because I realize most of what I'm dealing with is a mistake of the mind, not a mistake of the heart. I've had very, very, very few of those. Very few. Um, and then I'm doing this because I want to help them. I, I don't want them to make that mistake, so I deliver it that way. And I, I try to stay away from you fucked up or you did this or what you did was stupid. No, 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 no. It's not you. It was, I observed this, that behavior, I got a problem with that. If that, if that happens again, it can lead to this. It can lead to this. So I'm going to address that behavior, and here's what I'm going to do. So I want us to talk about this, and you tell me your thoughts. How do you feel? What happened there? So I give them a chance. Give them a voice. But the, the disciplinary side or the mistakes side, that's how we get better. We're going to make some mistakes along the way. The hope and prayer is that those mistakes are minor, and our career can survive them. And we're dealing with, we're in, in terms of leadership, somebody in those leadership roles acknowledge that, hey, this is a behavioral issue. You know, if I care about those I lead, let's address that. It doesn't mean this is a bad officer. This is a bad person. Right. So it's it, kind of my spill on that. I'm glad you brought that up because as a person that's worked for you, now we're friends. I mean, you know, I know you won't admit it on the radio, uh, but we're friends. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so funny. I know. Um, and we are friends. I, I worked for you, so it was it was weird because it started out. Uh, I go through the academy, and you were the you had just turned corporal at the yeah. time, and so you already were a supervisor over me in a sense. And then I got to see your personality style and all that stuff, right. and I was like, dude, he's a fucking cool guy. And yeah. um, tell, tell my wife, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm not telling her. Yeah. And uh, she's gonna watch this or listen, whatever. She's not. She's I'm not. Gonna, I'm gonna block her. Yeah. Um, but we became friends and then I end up, it's weird to end up working for somebody, somebody that you become friends with. And, uh, you followed that model with me and it's a leadership role that I wish, I think it's one of the major things lacking in leadership today is they don't want to have the difficult conversation. And then it ends up leading to that person. Like you said, you care about them. I don't want them to get in trouble, but, when you care about them, it starts to make it, it more difficult to lead them. And I, I wish if anybody got anything from the leadership side, even though we were supposed to talk about use of force, this still all plays, they're all entwined. But you had, I, I can say, honestly, I didn't get in any trouble under you, but you still told me things to improve on. You were like, hey, dude, you're, I see where you're at. You know, and you did your shit sandwich as you call yeah. it or whatever you did you, you know? did good you fucked up here but you did <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep doing a good job yeah, yeah. so uh <laughs> it, 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 if you know buck's formulas for everything like yeah. you, you start laughing while he's telling you ah, okay, no, okay no, i'm gonna say this okay that's for developmental stuff yes when it comes to conflict the approach there's a different formula for that but like if it's oh, okay there is but if it's developmental it, it's the it's the praise yes. critique praise yes yeah so um but which I had that with you all the time. Yes. I didn't. I yes. didn't. I'm just so, but it was the point that I'm getting to is that leadership style is somebody, I, I, I take pride in what I do. And it's kind of almost to a fault. Like I get emotionally invested in what I do. Sure. So, um, and I know that about myself. You pointed it out. So uh, <laughs> that's how I realized it. And when you told me something, to fix or get better at or whatever, I took it to heart that much more 
because of the respect I had of you as a leader. I took the friendship side out of it. It just there's right. you earned more of a leadership respect just because of the way you approached it. So I'm trying to get that out to other leaders. Like quit being afraid to lead. You're going if you're you're afraid. You're you're basing it off of fear, and you're going to be a worse leader than you're intended. And we overcompensate with we. I'm in control. It, 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 it comes from fear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I wrote this. I got on a spiel one night. It, it, it all stemmed from a poor, in my opinion, leadership decision. I'm not going to mention any departments or anything like that, but a recent decision to fire an officer. And I didn't agree. Uh, it, it could be something that I agree with later, but it, I think it all happened too fast. And basically I was talking about when you make an, a, a fearful decision and letting fear dictate the way you lead it sure. you're, you're bound to fail as a leader and it's going to contradict all the the big picture ideas that you have you may satiate that thing um, that immediate hunger for whatever side you're trying to appease but in the long run you're only going to alienate both sides of the house and so um i want people to get from what you just said that you have to you have to base your leadership that way and i it, i'm trying to make the point i'm trying to make is that as somebody who's your friend and you still followed that that model and it, it i think it worked better even as somebody who's your friend so if you're you're leading people that there's no friendship with you're just you know subordinate and and leadership role so, uh, supervisor it i think it'll work even may work even better i don't know but follow that instead of being fearful of it does right. that make sense? It does. Okay. Yeah. So, and it's, uh, there's, God, we could talk all day about the leadership side, but the, on the leadership side, it is, um, I think, and I'll speak for myself and I'm, I'm only assuming here that most people that have been in those leadership positions or are can probably attest to this. It is those difficult conversations and sometimes with with people that we really are friends with those can be even more stressful yeah you you yell at george a lot i do he need well he can't he's like i think he's 57 58 he does i do that he's a lot older than you i i I yell at him because oh he just can't hear yeah he just can't hear yeah makes Um, sense yeah so i mean i'm I'm yelling at him as nice as possible (laughs) so but with with leadership it is those um uncomfortable conversations especially where i'm dealing with maybe a potential conflict disciplines always everybody's watching discipline stuff how how is this leader going to handle discipline everybody's watching um so and i think it was a crucial conversation conversation i think i've read that book twice but um and it was actually a, oh gosh it's all it's all blur all the books but i i want to say that was on a promotional exam at one point but that book um one of the things that stuck out with me and I see it and I applied it is this is in those difficult conver- difficult conversations where we're dealing maybe with some conflict or here's, here's the biggest thing with discipline. If I go, Oh yeah, this is, that's a problem. What causes the fear? My biggest fear. And again, I'm assuming other leaders, same thing is what are people going to think of me? And what is this person going to think of me when I tell them that? So how do we deliver that? So there's a formula for that. And, and we, we want to try to create either uh, cooperation, uh, sometimes compromise, but ideally collaboration. What can we do together? Here's the problem I see. Here's how it makes me feel. Here's what I expect to happen. But I didn't see that happen. So there's a gap with, within my expectations and what I saw. 
Tell me your side. Well, here's a, okay, cool. Sometimes it is, hey, you know what? You're right. Okay, cool. Well, from moving forward, here's my expectations. What can we do to, to make together? Let's work on this together. What can we do to prevent this? So that's a collaboration. That's the ideal outcome is how do we work together to solve this problem? However, the two worst ways to deal with conflict are those uncomfortable situations. And I'm going to say this, and people listening are going to go, oh, my God, I see that all the time, is this, avoiding or accommodating. So if we have a situation or maybe a person, oh, I don't want to deal with that. That's too, I'm too uncomfortable. What do we do? Well, let's accommodate that person and put them in somewhere else where maybe bad things won't happen. Or we go, if I don't talk about it, maybe it'll go away. Now, marriage is different. (laughs) Marriage is different. Okay. So how you resolve conflict is you accommodate. Yeah. Yeah, It's different. There's no no collaboration, cooperation, compromise. It's you just accommodate. Yes. So, but in the professional workplace, you want to avoid the two A's. I know your wife's not listening to this. Oh God, I hope she does. I don't think she is. So she got Star Wars stuff and she's I'm not I'm not alone. Look at that. Fucking nerd. Yeah. Um one of the things you did uh that I have stolen from you is That's where it went. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I took it. Uh, (laughs) Um you told me like while you're Telling me your leader, like what you expect. You made it clear day one. Like we had, our, you went through the entire academy staff and you're like, you know, hey, when you got time, can you stop by my office? Which I always love that you do that too. I do, yeah, everybody's, every, yeah, everybody, yeah. individually. Yeah. yeah. For Buck, if you ever work for a guy like Buck, Buck doesn't say, hey, I need you to stop by my office at one. Like there's nothing like that. Hey, when you got some free time, let me know. Uh, I want to meet with you. Okay, cool. So now like, the stress is off, even though I still stress about it. Like, I'm still like, oh, my God, what the fuck did I do? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Buck, day one, well, I don't want to say day one, but it, at the beginning of him leading us as being our supervisor was like, here's my expectations. And he laid them out there like, this is, this is what I want. And if you need anything to get these done, let me know. So not only is he clearly laying out what his expectations are, so in my opinion, as a, as a subordinate, like, I'm like, as long as I do these things, I'm good to go. Like, that's simple. And that makes things a lot easier. So I, I know what the expectations are right, right. away, right out the bat, right. right out the gate. So, and then this is where I, I say this a lot. Like my job as a leader, and I got this from you. It, I don't think you said it specifically, but you showed me like f- to be a good leader. All I need to do is give you the tools you need to succeed. And by doing that, you make me look good. Mm-hmm. as a leader like you will look good because i'm kicking ass right and it, it, you don't need to brag about yourself this is brilliant shit so I, I wish i could claim it it's it, not mine i know it's but not it works but it's that's basic. the thing it's it, the basic stuff and it i know works. it's not yours and that's what i love yeah. about it is just it's so stupid simple it really is and it but until somebody lays it out and, and practically applies it to your life like it, the light bulbs just don't tend to go off so you laid that out and i'm like he's right like Everybody loves everybody loves Buck. If you don't know Buck, yes. everybody at work loves My Buck. My wife has got to watch this. He is the golden child for the department that I work at. Uh, <laughs> he can do no wrong. Um, I believe somebody's got him on video walking on water somewhere. 
I don't know about that. I think, I think it's true. Uh, there might be some of you were in somewhere. You were in full uniform, so that makes sense why okay. you were able to stay on water on the top. But um, <laughs> but that and in, 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 I'm I'm bowing down to the master. This is one of the things that I where's, took. Where's your Yoda? You got a Yoda? I don't okay. have a Yoda in here. Um, it's all dark side stuff. Mostly. Okay. okay. Uh, but that's one of the things that I took from you and, and that I try to apply as a leader. Um, you know, I, I run a team now and, and that's like, what do you guys need? What do you need? Like, I make it real simple for myself. I'm like, oh, you want 10 on a car? Cool. Let me do the paperwork. I'll get it done. All right, cool. We got 10 on the car. Uh, what else do you need? City cell phones? Okay, let me see what I can do. It took me a year, but I made it known that that's, I was, hey guys, I got the paperwork in. I, I've done what I can do and I'm pushing the envelope right. with the, with the, the bigger names trying to get it done. It'll happen when it happens. It's approved. So, and then it happened, you know, and to my guys, like that was super it's small stuff. It really didn't take much effort on my part other than figuring out how to do it. But as a leader, I, from what you should like, I'm like, Oh my God, these guys love that stuff. And it, it really didn't, I didn't do much, but I laid the expectations out. I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. all the little things uh, running a team. So you did that. And I think the, the way that we worked as a team flowed so much better. I mean, we collaborated a lot more. I mean, just the team cohesion grew because we all knew what our role was. We, it, it helps knowing the expectations, but we felt safe leadership. It is if, if, if things go right, the praise goes to the people. Not the leader. If things go wrong, if there, if something bad happens, the leader has to own it. It's on them. Oh, yeah. So if the team fails, it's not the team's fault. You can't you can't look at a team and go, oh, all these off. No, 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 no. You got to look at the leader. Yeah. So in le- those in leadership positions, they have to be willing to say, if things go bad, it's on me. But if things go right, it's on them. Yes. And as leaders, the higher up we go, it's the more people we work for. They don't work as a lieutenant. People don't work for me. I work for them. So when, when we were together, that was, here's my expectations. What can I do for you guys? Yeah. Because I work for y'all. I need. And you worded it just like that. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's what I expect us. Now, please tell me if, if, if there's different expectations, cool, but here's what I expect. This is what I'm looking for. Here's our goals. We can collectively change them or if there's better ideas, fine. But tell me what. I need to do for you so we can get there. I shovel snow. I clear the path. That's what I do as a leader. And then with the leaders, the, um, oh, where's the other thing is really important part. Um, it's I, we, you. It just goes back to being a parent. We, I, I, I steal a lot of stuff from parenting. Good parents make good leaders and vice versa. Because when we, when we are, raising kids we are leading our kids so i we you and you can ask all of my kids even my adult kids they'll probably especially my daughter will probably roll her eyes oh my god i we you she know they, it's the same thing god you're so old you have adult yeah. kids well i got grandkids too. i know yeah but um george so, has great great grandkids i believe uh it's great 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 it's three three yeah, yeah. three great but great, he, great. he's got you know those adonis genetics I mean, no, he doesn't. Are you sure? Yeah, it's, he's got. He's, it, most of him's plastic. Oh, that's why he's oh, still able to function. Okay, he's I, got like two or three microchips or something. That makes sense. Yeah, I have to wonder because yeah. it looks it's, like 
I'd say it's mostly plastic. Okay. He, yeah. I mean, he's. I thought he was hunched over, but I, it, it might just be the yeah the the, the implants. It is that makes sense. It okay. Is. So, um, but the IWU being in a leadership role, um, if I expect you to do something, now I got to be honest. If I go, hey, let's get here, I don't know how to do it. So maybe I need your help. But ideally, and this is if if I'm telling you guys, here's what I expect, then let me show you how to do this. So I'll do it first, or let's say I want you to, let's say you're an instructor and I'm the supervisor of that, that team of a bunch of instructors. I expect us to do this, provide this product to our department, our officers, our recruits. And my expectation is that each of you will have, you know, some kind of course that you're going to train. Well, hey, I don't know how to do a PowerPoint. Cool. I'll do it first. Let's get together. I'll, I'll do it. The second, and then we'll do it together, and then the next one's on you. So remember, I, we, you, the higher up, I work for more people. They don't work for me. Um, and then the other one that we talked about, I forgot already, in terms of leadership. Dang it. I'll think of it. But, okay. But, but the basics, the it just, it's not rocket science, but the basics work. Creating expectations, be willing to be vulnerable, which is say, hey, you know, I'm your boss, whatever the case is. I don't know everything here. I'm not the smartest person in the room, but here's what I expect. And tell me what you guys need, because I'm here to work for y'all. Oh, that's the other thing I was going to say. It's the this. freedom to figure out how to do it. Was it that one? Hmm. That's what that, I was thinking. Of. That's ability and willingness. So that's, as a leader, when we're managing, I'm sorry, I hate saying that word, when we're leading people, we manage process, supervise people. So when we're when we're supervising people and leadership is part of that, we have to look at if if I'm not getting to where I think my expectations are, I, or a person isn't performing where I think they're they are supposed to be performing. I have to look at two things: their ability and willingness, and the combination between those two. If we put it on a little chart, it's going to be like four squares. If the ability is low and their willingness is high, and I got that all day. Which is let me, okay, okay. You're willing to do this. You just don't know how. Let me let me work with you. I can I can help you, or I'll get somebody who can. We can we can fix that. It's just you just need to learn. If your ability is high, but your willingness and is low, that's often with more seasoned officers. This is where true leadership comes into play. Leaders are there to inspire and motivate. Period. Sentence done. That's what we do, or that's what they do. So if I'm dealing with somebody who has the ability to do something, they're just not willing to do it. Those are the people I need to inspire and motivate. That takes a little bit more involvement. Um, And I got to have some conversations with that person. I got to try to identify what motivates them. Um, But uh, that's probably about it for now. I I, I was, there was something else I can't remember, but the, the leadership thing. You yeah. should title this use of force slash leadership. I plan on doing, yeah. I actually, I was love of, this topic. Yeah, I was going to do um, use of force, uh, emotional intelligence, and leadership. Ah, okay. So, uh, and we're just now hitting the two hour mark, and I, two to three is where is my cap. Oh, so, um, if you want to get more into the emotional intelligence side of things, too, we've we've got that freedom. Um, as far as use of force, I want to make sure have we hit everything. On use of force, I, I can't think of any real questions that I have because I did want to touch on a use of force uh, review board. Um, 
Oh, I do know what I want to talk about uh, with use of force review boards. Um, qualifications for that type of thing. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, you're in you're in patrol and you're on the use of force review board, or you are in a leadership role as far as a uh, rank goes. So you know whether that's a, a DC down to a uh, lieutenant, sergeant, whatever it is. Um, I still think when it comes to use of force, if you are a person who's played it safe your whole career. What value are you to a use of force review board? The short answer is, is less value. Okay. If, if, if a person has played it safe, and back to words matter and definitions, what does play it safe mean? Do we, I, don't, I don't know that definition, but, but when I think play it safe and those listening that hear this, I think someone who has avoided difficult or confrontational situations or maybe use of force situations. Um. That would be less value. So use of force review board, a couple things. So people, the patrol positions in particular, uh, that is kind of like, um, it can be any rank. So there could, it could be anybody and who, who knows what their training and background is. You, if you, if you're selecting somebody from CID, you know, at least they have a fact finding background. They have an investigative background. If you got somebody from training division or a specialized unit like SWAT, that's on the use of force review board, they got a tactical or a training background. If you have somebody that's administrative levels, they have policy background. So we need that. We need those pieces of the puzzle, right? Right. And then you have the use of force coordinator, who's the the chairperson, and then the person that does this full time. They have the ongoing training, the national conventions, the case law. So you got this broad spectrum. That patrol component. If I open up to patrol officers, I could be getting the, the you know the anywhere from the one-year officer to the 20-year lieutenant, you know, anybody in patrol. So that one, I'm not really sure, uh, certainly. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I want to make sure I touch on this. Okay. So so that being said, um, what qualifications do we have? So those positions, the patrol positions in particular, um, those positions, when there's vacancies, people apply. And we might have three or four, we might have ten. That applies. So the board's going to look at what are their qualifications. So there's a filter system there. The second thing is once they're on the board, they're going to get some training. What we did for the board last year was uh, it was because of COVID. Most things were WebEx and what's whatever the Zoom. other is, Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. So most things were online. So we were able to get the national use of force training that has all, you know, case law, everything. It's, a, it's, 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 State, I mean, it's a it's the, the biggest thing in terms of use of force that happens every year. So everybody, we got we got funding to get everybody trained on that. So this year, um, now that travels open back up, we'll have a smaller group. But what we do is we'll have uh, internal training. So everybody in the board will sit through some classes. Uh, so there's training. So there's a filter system in terms of who gets on the board, and then once they're on the board, they will get some kind of training. So hopefully okay. that it kind of answers it. Yes. So it's kind of two part. And then um, another thing that uh, I, I want to get to the citizen side of thing more often than not, because I think police kind of know this already. Um, use of force shows a, a typical pattern for in, in correlation with years of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, can uh, you? Yes. And that's the other thing we track as officer tenure. Yes. So can you get into that portion sure, of yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah. You bet. Um, the majority, and I say 
I mean, I actually got a piece of paper down here. I think I could look that up. But um, the the majority of use of force comes from that five year and under tenure or officer that's been on for five years or less. And the clear pattern that we see is as tenure increases, use of force decreases. So that's that is a single statistic, right? On the surface. You and I might say, oh, the longer you've been on this job, the less likely it is you're going to have to use force because who knows, maybe you're learning people skills, life experiences, you learn how to talk. And and honestly, we've been in this situation 10 times. I know what to say this time. Certainly that is a factor. I can't say we measure that factor. That is a very kind of subject. I'm not really sure how to measure that. Here's what we do know that is very tangible and we can measure it to, to metrics is how, first of all, how much of this department is in patrol. And for most major cities, it's going to be the majority for our cities, the majority of departments in patrol. Second thing is let's look up the average tenure for those in patrol. Guess what ours is in our major city? Five years or less is the median number. So what I'm saying is we have your 20-year, it's a bell curve. Everything's a bell curve. We have your, you know, one year, you know, a little hunk down here. And then the majority, you know, two, three, four, five, six, right around five, six, seven, eight, 10, 20. So we have, it's a bell curve. So most people in patrol, that five-year mark is about average. So what that statistic says is two things. And I can't. I can't say it with certainty because I don't have the actual data. These are, I guess, educated guesses. One is that number doesn't surprise me for two reasons, which I've already stated, which is first is most people in patrol, the average tenure is five years or less, and that's most of our use of force. The second is as you go up in tenure, we, we learn how to interact with people more effectively. I don't know how to measure that. <laughs> yeah. But I believe that. So I think that helps too. But so in terms of what what that means for us, like in law enforcement, those other agencies listening, like what do you do with this data? It is this. If there's training to be delivered, really, really, really try to draw in your five and under folks because they're most likely to use it. They probably need the most. Because um, here's what happens, at least in a big city, around that five-year mark, what happens in our career? Start promoting. We start like promoting, yeah. going to specialized units. So around that five-year mark, a lot of people actually leave patrol to go do other avenues, whether right. it's being a detective or working in, in a unit or promote, which is being a detective. But the point is... For some. So that five-year and under, which is where most of our use of force comes from, it doesn't shock me. Um, it, it, it tells me what I think I kind of suspect, which is how we talk to people and we, we get better at that with experience. That comes into play. But certainly one thing we can measure is what's the tenure in patrol. Um, in five years, most people, they, they have the opportunity to go somewhere else or maybe even promote. Do you think, um, be, because you're sold, um, do you mm. think that, uh, <laughs> that that want to stay in patrol has changed? Because I, I remember the glory I stories. I've, I really I, do. People I, stayed in patrol forever. <laughs> they do not stay in patrol anymore. Oh, there's more. Don't worry. Yeah, I, I do. Finish I do. Yeah. Um, and 
God, what I'm going to say is going to sound cliche, and some people listening might go, "Oh, that's bullshit," or you might agree. Whatever, I don't. It doesn't matter. If you say it, I pretty much agree with it. I'm a yeah, buck. I'm yeah. a buck Wheeler like fanboy. So God, I need my wife to listen to this. I know. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it's this. Um, I okay when when I I'll speak from my experience when I got on this department or got into law enforcement. I did. I I honestly never ever thought like I want to be a supervisor. I want to be a detective. I want to be in administration and. George the one that told me this because he he's one of my best friends and he even says like when we're at work he calls me LT that's just the way it is yeah because he goes hey you're admin yeah and I respect that and it's well, just the way it it's is a military rank thing too. yeah it, it, I'm the just, same way but hitting that LT mark I, that is probably the biggest transition in terms of I have I have a less con, uh, lesser degree of of a connection to the people that I lead. It takes more work to physically kind of be in, in involved with them. As a sergeant, I was definitely involved directly with those people. So, lieutenant, there, there's kind of, there is a noticeable boundary in terms of your now admin. So, the, uh, um, what was the question? Um, if you forgot, it'll uh, No, no, about uh, the leaving patrol oh, earlier patrol. now. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. So when I got in this department, I never thought about law enforcement other than patrol. Like my, my mind was not even, I took a promotional exam thinking, eh, I test pretty good. I mean, I bombed it. I was like, oh. Well. It's one of the hardest tests I've ever taken. Yeah. And, and I was like, I was like, next time I'm studying my ass off because yeah. I didn't take it. I was like, ah, how far could it be? Multiple choice. I was the same. Yeah. It, yeah. I did terrible. Um, but, but I never thought about. Oh, I want to be a sergeant. I want to be, I never, I never, I just thought, man, I'm, I'm an in the, tr- in the trenches kind of guy. And those people that have known me through my career know that those people that know me as a sergeant, as a lieutenant probably can't picture me that way, but I wasn't in the trenches guy. That's how I lived my life. I was in the trenches. Yeah. That's just what I do. I'm okay with that. The promotional aspect for me really came into, wait a second. I got a family. I'm going to retire. When this job is gone, this job is gone. My family's still going to be there. So I got I to start looking ahead. I didn't promote until I was 10 years in my career. Mm-hmm. So the patrol side, that's kind of where in the training side, I was never thinking, oh, I'm going to be an instructor. And back to the, like the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stuff, what got me interested in that is I'm old school, man. I mean, usually the first person gets the hardest hit to punch right off the bat. You're usually going to win a fight. That's how I grew up. So I didn't really buy into martial arts or anything in particular. And that's when I was watching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was crazy. crazy. Yeah, I was like, yeah. man, there's something to this. So that kind of drew me to that. Uh, but now I've kind of got back to the boxing, which is usually the person that punches the hardest right at the bat is probably going to win. So I've kind yeah. of, I've, it's kind of come full circle. So now yeah. I do the boxing thing again. But uh, with patrol, I came at this job just thinking, man, I'm, I grew up in the trenches. I mean, I can, I can handle this kind of stuff. This is my career. And then having a family, I got to think it, golly, okay. <laughs> Am I being selfish? Just, you know, being in this patrol thing or, do I, you know, I need to look towards the future. So once promotion happened, it was more for not what's better for my career. It's what's better for my family. That's kind of what got me into promoting. And honestly, that's kind of one of the biggest driving factors of why I got, I'm, I'm a Lieutenant. Yeah. You know, and even, 
when I talk to people, I mean, I, I know you know this, you know, it's, I still, when people go, hey, LT, I still, oh, shit, that's me. Yeah, You're yeah. talking to me. Yeah. You know, so I got to remember, and, I've, and Buck is my real name. So I've learned, I tell people, call me, you can call me Buck, LT, I don't give a shit, whatever you want to call me, that's cool. Most people still call me LT. And I've just learned whatever they're comfortable with, just let them say yeah. whatever. You know, but uh, yeah, so the the uh, promotional side of it and the patrol side of it, um, I've always, even when I've got into training and when I worked in different units, that's always been, you know, the elevation view that we talked about. Mm -hmm. That's always been a component, which is the backbone, the spine, the essence, the meat and potatoes of what law enforcement is about. Those folks that are in patrol, they're not... They don't have a perimeter set up when they answer a call. They don't have things. They're they're getting there when it's fresh. They got to figure it out whether you're two year or twenty year, and you got to figure shit out under pressure. And it's not easy to do. Yeah. So that's the essence of law enforcement in my mind or police work. So that's always been one of those filters, which is how does this affect the majority of what we do? Um. So for me. I haven't gotten away from that. Uh, I, certainly, I don't want to be naive and say that there haven't been times I have. There's certainly been some times where I was hyper-focused on what I was doing. But um, when I got into this career, I didn't come here thinking about the Tarantino. Yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't have, I didn't come here thinking, oh, I'm going to be a lieutenant sitting behind a desk. That is not what I thought when I came to this job. I was thinking, I'm going to be in the field. Mm -hmm. um, so have I seen that change? Yes, I have. I, I, and this is not for those listening that are Levine's age or younger, whatever. 38. 38? That's 28. No, I, no, I, I look 28. Say, no, I was going to say you look like 38. I thought you were 28. Cause, no, I'm 30, fuck. <laughs> I was gonna, flip, <laughs> he switched flip, it on me. Flip, flip the script. Okay. But, um, <laughs> fucker. <laughs> so it, it's essentially this. Have I seen that change? I have. And it, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not shooting holes in different generations. Everybody, we're all human. Um, I have seen a shift in that. I see, I see patrol here, probably in the last, I'm, it's just kind of anecdotal. This is um, maybe the last 10 years, I've seen more of a shift of patrol is where I spend some time so I can get to here. Right. Patrol is where I get to so I can get to here. And honestly, even at the supervisor level patrols where I'm going to spend some time so I can get to be over a specialized unit. Yeah. So what's, is that good, bad? I don't know. Um, is that how do, if it is bad, how do we fix it? I don't know, but I can't say with larger cities, um, uh, public perception pressures from media, um, cultural changes that we see nationwide, I can see all of those being factors into let me do my time here so I can kind of get out of the spotlight and, and just yeah. get a spot where I'm not as visible. Right. Patrol's pretty visible. Yeah. So I have seen that change. I don't really know how to resolve that or if even, you know, I can't honestly, I can't say that's bad. Me personally, I would rather people stay several years in patrol because that's we need the experience there and especially those in leadership roles we yeah need, i think need them there one of the biggest factors and and i'm i agree with you i think you know the way you can become viral overnight things like that that that's all 
fear-based social media plays into that yeah i think those are all things that play a role in why people are staying or getting out of patrols almost as quick as they can and i don't fault people for that and uh but i think one of the things that uh departments can do is when it comes to retirement the way you play your retirement role makes a difference on how long you're going to keep people in patrol um if you give your guys the tools to stay in patrol when it comes financially and, and when it comes to the long term, I think that's a big factor because uh, these departments that they have patrol officers that are 10, 15 years of, you know, you got your Johnny Cox's out there who right. uh still killing it in patrol, but his retirement is a little different. So that is a, fa- I think that's a major factor and I don't, I'm not faulting any department or, or the people that make those decisions because there's a financial component and all that stuff, but big picture now that we've seen the changes that have happened because of things of those type of decisions, maybe it's time to switch back because you are opening up your department for higher liability because you're only keeping zero to five year officers in the field because they don't have a choice. And if you get the more experienced officers out there, and this is just me spitballing, you're going to have a lot less liability issues. So in the long run, we keep those guys out there, keep those really good guys out there, and teach our younger guys you're only investing into your own department. And maybe that's something that some people should look at, maybe people with rank. Um, I'm going to add some to that. Okay. I think, sure, people of rank and incentivizing patrol is a great idea. And this has probably been on the table before. Yeah. But I think because what we see now is community has a larger influence in law enforcement. And I'm not, I'm not down in that. It's just the way things are. And it's okay. And if I'm a community member, I want that. But that's just departments are more transparent. What happens, uh, you know, whether it be a law enforcement shooting, disciplinary issue, it's, it's likely to be on the news that day or the next day. So the point is there's a higher degree of transparency, much more community involvement, I think that issue that how do we incentivize patrol to keep good people out there with those experience? Because I get it. There's probably a a fear factor that's driving some of those people say, you know what? I don't want to be here because I don't want to be on the news. Everybody's out to get me. They think I'm, you know, doing this because I'm biased towards whatever the case is. It's just, I I just want to do my time here and get out because it's so risky Mm -hmm. being a patrol. That view wasn't there before. There's, there's, uh, I think it's changed. Um, and I get it. Again, like you, I'm not faulting the officers, but it's this. How do we get the community to agree to that? Because I haven't been to any community conversation. I haven't talked to any community member that's living in, in, in areas where there's issues, there's problems, whether it's underlying, whatever the case is. I haven't talked to anybody. I don't know if I said lived in. I meant talked to. Um, or lived in for that matter. I haven't talked to anybody at the community level that said, I want less police. Defund the police department. I want less police in my neighborhood. I haven't talked to anybody, any community member that has said that mm-hmm. in those about, hey, what do we do here? I want less police. No, I want more police. I want police that have, that not just have experience, but that are connected. I'm very cautious with language, you know, like, like a beat officer. I'm, I love the beat concept. Um, but it's not an ownership of that beat. That's not, it is a connection to that beat. Yes. We, don't, we, we don't want to say the beat officer 
it gives them a sense of ownership. No, 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 no. It, it, it's a sense of connection because yeah. we want to be connected to the people that we're working with and working for. So I would love to see part of the resolution to how do we incentivize patrol? Mm-hmm. How do we keep experienced people in patrol? If we're having a hard time doing that departmentally, let's get the community involved. You know, this is because I guarantee you they're going to say, yeah, I would rather have 10 plus year experienced officers in my neighborhood than your one or two year officers. Yeah. So to me, part, part of the solution to that is community involvement. I agree. How do, how do we get the community to support that? Yeah, I agree. Um, not, uh, I'm not trying to totally go away from that, but then don't. Um, I kind of am. Dope. Um, so we talked See, I'm about getting into this podcast thing. I know. Is, yeah. So we got voice inflection. I like it. I like it. Um, we talked about the zero to five year and, and, and the statistics behind that use of force and stuff like that. Um, another common thing that I hear, and this was as an instructor. Can you tell me who told you? Um, I'm, I'm just being I, silly. I, I so, yeah, yeah I got so one in my head right I'm now. I could tell you. No. Because <laughs> uh, I made, I'm just having fun with the mic. Say, I, I embarrassed him. Uh, anyway, um, the dependency on the Batman belt. You got the old school mm-hmm. officers versus the new school who say, "Well, our rookies are too dependent on their Batman belt." And I remember when you started doing all these statistical uh, checklists and uh, watching all this stuff, and you actually, you at least you told me this that you kind of found the opposite. Like they were going hands on. Like, and I. One, can you explain to the community, listen, why that's a good thing versus this dependency on the Batman belt? And then two, can you explain to other law enforcement how, at least in the fishbowl we're in, that you're, the trend you saw? Sure. So, um, and I'm going to kind of unpack the question a little bit. So part of what I'm hearing is what um, the Batman belt being, you yes. know, tools we have, whether pepper spray, Taser baton, even firearm, you know, deadly, deadly force. So dependency on that versus open hand control, weaponless type strategies. So the, for on our department, we actually saw uh, between a couple of years, I want to say it was 2018 to 2019, we saw a pretty big increase in increase of taser um, and then le- a pretty substantial increase in going hands on. So that, that raises a couple of questions, which is, first of all, why? And the second is, does that matter? So when we, when we start looking at that, part of the reason of why is media has an influence. When officers feel unsafe going hands-on, and honestly, when, and I hear this a lot, and I'm not, I'm not trying to take sides one way or the other, oh, that use of force looks bad. Oh, that doesn't look good. There's a problem. It looks bad. I get it. I don't, I'll be honest. I don't know a lot of use of forces that look good. People, whether, whether they're law enforcement or citizens, when we watch TV, that does influence our implicit bias, our subconscious, how we, how we view things and what seems to be normal. What we see on TV is not how things occur in reality. So, um, punches, slaps takedowns they're dynamic um they they more often than not they're not as they're perfectly trained it doesn't look like a martial arts movie sometimes they're kind of tangled up and then the officer kind of gets into the right position so they don't always look how we think they're supposed to look so we got to be careful and mindful of what do we think they're supposed to look like i don't know of any 
normal or good use of force. Like I don't have a baseline for that other than Hollywood movies. So keeping that in mind, when I look at something, um, if, if an officer has a fear of, especially if it hits mainstream media of, Hey, what's, what's seen on news of these takedowns or people, our officers having to deliver strikes or slaps or some kind of elbow strike, whatever it is to gain control of somebody. That's what's getting the most criticism. Guess what? I'm going to stay away from that because I don't want to get in trouble. Right. So if I'm that officer that I'm feeling that pressure, not just from what I see on media, maybe perhaps from the public, maybe even departmentally, then I'm going to go, you know what? It's just safer. I'm just going to go with it straight to the taser. So we, 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 I I can't, it's, it's kind of subjective what I'm saying. That's just more of a thought. What, what I talking to officers I've seen, but we haven't actually measured like why you go hands-on less and use the taser more. But we saw that shift. Now, I can't say this. Departmentally, we did see that shift around the time we're getting a new piece of equipment. So maybe officers were like, hey, I wonder, is this does this work? Certainly that could be part of it. I don't know. But what we actually saw between 2019 and 2020 was the opposite. Officers, so the word confidence pops into mind. Confident officers are safer officers. That's the next thing I wrote down. Okay. So when officers, this comes from training, this comes from leadership, because we're influenced by the media, the public. So if we're if we're led by those that reassure us, hey, if you're as long as you're doing what's within policy, as long as you're doing what's right, you're gonna be okay. If they know that, most officers can probably get things under control safely. By going hands-on versus using a weapon system or less lethal option like a taser. Because a taser, it might immobilize a person, but that doesn't always mean they're under control. They could fall. They could land on something. That's, you know, but if we, if we can move in and I'm confident, not just in my skills, my weaponless strategy going hands-on, but I'm confident that when leadership and even the public, I, I expect there's always going to be criticism from the public. But when, when, when those in leadership and supervisory roles go, hey, everything you're doing, you're, you're right. You tried to de-escalate. You talked to the person. Or maybe the opportunity wasn't there. Hey, you did what you could. You, got, you moved in quickly. You got them under control. You didn't have to tase that person, which, honestly, we don't have control of a person when they're, when they're under power. They could fall. The point is, when we feel safe in doing our job, we're confident in our skills, we'll see a decrease in less lethal options and those hands-on. And I'm not encouraging hands-on as the way to go with everything. I'm somebody, you can call me old school, I've been here for a while. I think I've used my taser twice in patrol. I just, I'm just more likely to go hands-on. I just feel like I can move in control and safely maintain control of that person during the duration that of that encounter. Taser, I don't feel like I was, I'm in control as much. But there's certainly situations that a taser can allow me distance because some situations, that's one of the reasons, that's one of the benefits of taser. It, I can use force at a safe distance. Point is this. When I feel safer about how this is viewed, whether it be leadership, supervision, administration, um, and I'm confident in my abilities, weaponless strategies will probably see an increase in that and a decrease in less lethal, which, which, which is what we saw. So why is that? It could be changes in policy, leadership. It could be... Uh, better training um, or more effective training, whatever the case may be. But that's where training is so important, which is this. When we train officers, 
and they feel good and they believe, okay, this works, this is effective, and they're allowed those opportunities to use it, and we, and we continue that training, as confidence goes up, the, the two, a couple of things happen. When it's time to use force, my hesitation goes down. I'm, I'm quicker to recognize, okay, this isn't working. I can gain control. Done. Situation's over. Second thing is, as our confidence goes up, the likelihood that we use force actually goes down. So we want officers confident in, obviously, less lethal and lethal options, but we want them confident in their ability to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And their ability to use weaponless strategies, whether that's you know, you know, MTD squared, manage the distance, manage damage, man, go in, get control, use a strike, whatever the case is. So confidence is a big deal. We want confident officers out, out there, right? And, and one of the things that I want to point out is, um, there in a, the particular department we work in, there is a lot of black belts. Um, uh, in and I, I hate saying the word black belts but what i mean is the top of the top top of the oh, yeah. food chain when it comes to we have some legit you know, people in our department yeah and, yeah and and i'm not like i'm not i'm talking like legit mixed martial arts champions um jujitsu champions like nationally ranked i mean i'm talking like they're at the top of the food chain when it comes to hand-to-hand combat let's put it that way um yeah. these are the people that use force the least amount of times and, and it goes into what you're saying. They have a confidence. It's not a cockiness. It's not an anything. So because they're, whether it's their presence, you know, sometimes you guys tell. Like, if, if you can read people, you're like, that dude knows how to handle himself. So if we're dealing with any street-savvy criminals, like, maybe it's just their presence and the way they carry themselves, whatever it is. Right. That deters the use of force or whatever it is. Um, I can... It, one of the reasons I trained jujitsu so strenuously for so long was I wanted to be able to protect myself, but I found myself the total opposite. I mean, I've been with our department nine years, uh, my other department six years, and I, I didn't, I didn't use the force that I thought I would, and I, right, I, I attribute that to the confidence and. I want to get the departments out there that are listening and the community that's listening. Um, it's not a cockiness. It's, it's a confidence. And when you are confident in the training that you've been given, you're, you're less likely to use it. I, I, I don't know why. It, it, I can't explain the correlation behind that it, because a, a person that's not trained but that's really good with their words and, and able to talk to people, they're in the same boat. I think they use force a lot less because they're able to talk to people. But when you combine the two, when you have really good training, you're super going to have a lot less use of force. Yes. So um, I don't know how to train people to be socially awesome. Like, I don't, I don't right. know how to make you good at talking to people. You, I don't want to say you either have or you don't. I think you are able to develop it. it. You, you, it, It's a learned skill. Some people do have it. Some people that don't, it's an OJT, on-the-job ex- yes. kind of training type thing. They learn it. Yes. And I think um, they have a yeah. rougher time in the job at the beginning. But they, like you said, they they figure it out. And that's one of the learning from your mistakes. And if you have a good leader that's able to point out those things early, but teach their own. Um, but of all the use of force stuff, I this is the, to me, this is the most important lesson. So I want you to harp on it. Like the, the whole... 
how hesitation can you can you get into that part the, the hesitation yes it, can we take a break and then i can do you have to go to the bathroom again I do. I, oh my god I, it's like okay i just ounces. i just want to give you perspective okay because perspective is everything I, I i've done this is podcast 31 i got the record for going to the bathroom oh my god you are yes. killing it so twice yeah <laughs> so I'm okay with that. You're all right. I'm not that? a prideful guy. Uh, I see that. All right. Yeah. Let me hold on. So hesitation. Yeah, well, I got it. I will get into that on the yeah. back. I got it underlined. So let me write the time down so I know where to clip this. Now, at. now what are you? What do most of your guests drink? Here, water, or are they drinking? No, no, we're drinking. Yeah, you, we're usually drinking whiskey or, or okay, beer. It's age. It's it's your age. <laughs> your prostate is enormous, <laughs> sir. So all right, you go to the bathroom. All right, we're back. Buck had to take a second bathroom break because he's old. So uh, it's because I'm used to drinking bourbon, not beer. That's my <laughs> All right, so um, I wanted Which, to get into yeah. Uh, oh, no, 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 I got more. Oh, okay, yeah, I wanted to get into um, the hesitation portion because we talked about confidence and and how that uh, actually lowers your use of force. Right. Um, and, and, I would think outside looking in, like all I think about when I hear the word, oh, there's a confident officer. I just think cocky asshole. And right. that's that's the mindset that I would see from the outside. It's looking almost in. the opposite. Usually confident officers are probably a lot more relaxed or more laid back because yeah. they're not worried about, hey, if something happens, I don't know what to do. They, they know what yeah. to do if something happens. Yes. So, um, but as far as, hesitation i want people to i I want you to harp the way you you taught me anyway Mm -hmm. about how a hesitation is 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 bad so even though sometimes when you see an officer punch somebody in the face and they go down and they get them all in cuffs like explain that do you know what i'm I'm getting okay yeah it because if if i don't i'll make it up Um, (laughs) it's not he's joking um, so, it, so, so the hesitation thing, let's, let's kind of dissect that a little bit. So the hesitation thing, hesitation can cause bad things to happen. And I think that actually came from the movie point break, but, um, something along those lines, but essentially it's this, when, when it's time to take action, it is important that, that officers are decisive in that action. Uh, it's not to negate de-escalation. De-escalation is about what can we do to, to lower the chance of using a force option that's going to cause higher degree of injury for example um, but for de-escalation to work by the way we have to have a couple of ingredients we have to have some distance and cover that allow us to buy time that time leads to a degree of containment so if we have containment which takes distance and cover to get to start with if we have a degree in containment then there's no rush we can slow things down we can try to talk to a person maybe talk them out of the house if that's the situation if i'm dealing with a person face to face if I'm paid by the hour, I'm not in a hurry. Now that's kind of a cultural shift. When I got on the department, it was, hey, if it's if you know gotta get this person handcuffed, do it really quick. Okay. So there's so there's things have kind of changed. And I will argue that the de escalation, which in plain language is trying to talk somebody into handcuffs. If I can go that route, that is the priority. And that's in our department, that's what we train. It's in scenarios, it's verbal in judo. That yeah, was the old way to say exactly. Yeah. And de escalation is about how can I for for de escalation to be effective, again, I have to have it, it can't if if i'm dealing with an immediate threat immediate threat requires immediate action there's no chance of de-escalation if i'm dealing with some, something running at me or or some you know victims in immediate danger i have to take immediate action i'm not going to stop and say hey can we talk about this so 
there has to be a feasible boundary for de-escalation to even be an option. But if it's somebody, maybe they, maybe they have a knife. They've committed an offense. They still have the knife in their hand. They're not running at me with it. And there's no immediate victims. There's no immediate threat. I have what I feel for me, a safe reactionary gap. Maybe I have some distance. Maybe I have some cover. Maybe an object between us. Now I got time. Maybe I can talk to that person. But at some point, if that person committed offense, whether they have an, a knife in their hand or not, I got to get them in handcuffs. So at some point, if that, that, that talking, that de-escalation is not working, if I'm not able to get them to where they're able to drop the knife and walk to me, whatever, whatever I feel is safe, then I need to take action. And how long is that? It's hard to say. Ten minutes, three hours? I don't know. That's a hard one. That, that's when we got to look at every situation. And, and those in administration, use of force review boards, oversight committees, same thing. We have to be reasonable in how we're looking at this. Okay, did they exhaust all these means? If the answer is yes, okay, now we have to take action. So that's where hesitation comes in. And that's kind of what we're getting at with this question, which is, when it's time to take action, we have to be decisive. If in that process, and this is where confidence, there's a relationship between confidence and hesitation. If my confidence is low, the chance of me hesitating when it's time to take action is high. The problem with hesitation is it's, it's kind of twofold. One is it's likely that something's, I'm, I'm going to increase the risk or if I hesitate and maybe I'm going to allow something to become a greater threat than what, than if I was decisive in my action. So that's one. And the other thing with hesitation is the If it's time to take action and other options, whether that be de-escalation, whatever the case is that, that, that those are no, it's clear, it's reasonable. Everybody's there is going, Hey, this isn't working. We got to get this under control hesitation no long two things one i'm likely to to make a mistake in my action or, or delay and the second thing is i'm going to allow time for things to to become worse than what they were so as confidence goes up if i know that hey it's time to move in whether that be with a taser hands-on whatever the case is if i'm confident in that i'm going to do that quickly i'm going to be effective if i'm not confident i'm going to hesitate either before or during and the problem, not only is bad things going to happen, then to, to correct that hesitation, I'm often going to have to compensate with a force option that's more likely to cause an injury. So I may, my hesitation may lead to, instead of using less lethal, worst case scenario, it could turn into a lethal situation. Right. So hesitation and confidence, they have a direct relation, wait, inverse relation. So as one goes up, the other goes down. Yeah. So once again, training and confidence – they're really, really important. So the point that I want to harp on. Which is some, I did not make the point. No, 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 you oh. did. Absolutely. Um, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just having fun with the mic, man. This yeah, is, you're killing it. I'm getting used to it now. You're killing it. I'm glad that you're finally getting used to it two hours and 48 yeah. minutes in. I mean, me we need to take off about 20 minutes for your bathroom break. So. Maybe um, 30. Yeah, yeah uh, maybe 30. And. The point that I want to uh, get to is if you hesitate, and I want to give specific, because the way we're explaining it right now, the, the, the flaw that I see in it is we're talking to cops. Um, 
I want to give like a specific uh, made up example. It doesn't have to be real, but where hesitation would lead to me using, let's say, uh, my baton or my gun versus being confident in doing the one and done with a with a punch. Mm, I you see, yeah, you yeah. see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um so if you could elaborate on, on that part so people understand how in the long run that one and done is actually safer for everybody versus the the firearm which is going to be a lasting effect on the officer and the person that the firearm is using. Right. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna jump to the worst case scenario. Hesitation Active shooter. Everybody, whether you're citizen or law enforcement, you're going to active shooter. You, you know what that means because we see it on the news. Not that that's a good thing. It's a bad thing. But active shooter, we're familiar with it. So here we go. Clean it out. Yeah. Before that. See, we're actually going in, in, in inverse order. We're yes, we are. To the lowest. <laughs> oh, yeah, we are. Um, so the hesitation. Active shooter is a worst case scenario, which is... I have someone who's actively seeking victims, you know, walking through a school. This is what we see the most. If I hesitate and go, wait a second, there's only a few of us here. Maybe we should wait for the TAC guys or SWAT guys to get here. The hesitation there could lead to more deaths. And I look at it from, if that's my kid, go in there and engage with this person. And, and certainly there's a risk, but... This is, this is one of the reasons we're in this job, which is that risk. It's not, hopefully it doesn't happen. Yeah. But time, to earn, does, time to earn your paycheck. Well, when it does, that's what we got to do. Mm-hmm. So that's a worst case scenario. The one and done, um, that, uh, that, that term, it, it essentially, for those listening, it means, hey, if I can use force, if I can do it one time and it's done and it's effective, that's great. Because if I'm hesitating, I'm not sure how to use the force, the degree of force that I need to use, the amount that I need to invest in that force. The longer I prolong that, especially in a dynamic situation, the longer it lasts, the higher the risk of injuries go up for citizens and for the officer involved. Right. And worst case scenario, that could lead to what I call compensating behaviors. So I'm not, I'm being ineffective here. It continues and can you, now that I know this isn't working, exhaustion kicks in. Now I have to use a force option that is going to cause an injury. Worst case scenario, it could lead to deadly force. So this is, this is something I think is important, whether it's citizen or law enforcement. It is one and done in terms of when it's time to take action, whether that be an open hand strike or closed fist strike. In a law enforcement, we do those strikes in order to momentarily stun that person, displace balance, or distract them for a, a small period of time in order to gain control of the hands or get them in a position where we control. It's not like a boxing match. I'm not doing, I'm not delivering a punch to get a good jab in. So the, you know, I get a couple of points. It's good for him. Thank you. Thank you. It's yeah. just, it's instinct now. Yeah, I see it. Um, yeah. So <laughs> see, that's another podcast. It is. I still hit dude. I spin all the time. Um, that's why uh, you see the Ivan hitting, you know, no, know. is he? Oh yeah! Dude. Oh my god! He's almost. He's. I can't wait for his first school fight. He's fight. I I can. Hopefully, it doesn't happen. Oh, I hope it does. He's five eleven, two oh five. Yeah, guess what grade he's in, folks? Seventh. My. Oh my god! He is not in seventh grade. Yeah, he is. He's he my is. daughter's. Oh my daughter's in seventh grade. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> They're in the same grade. God, I keep forgetting. I told you my girl dropped the f bomb the other day, right? I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm putting that out there. So, and this is this is the 12 yeah. year old, and he plays football for for the junior high. Yeah, and he's he's with his shoes on. He's my height. Yeah, you know? and he's he's constantly punching me and hitting me, and 
It, no, we do mitts. We try to do it. I love he's getting the confidence because oh, he should, lacked it for a you while. Should see the, you should see the, the combos. We can go good. Oh, that's uh, great. It's, it's next level stuff. Yeah. But uh, the point is <laughs> when we're delivering a strike, whether it's open hand or closed fist, it's it's it never looks good. I don't know how to make that look good, whether it's – and why do we hit the face? Why is that even a, a target area? Uh, that's an area that is most likely to stun or distract. Certainly, there's a risk of injury. It's the Mike um, Tyson theory. We can, yeah, and it, and we could definitely, you know, if if that target is the only one available that I can stun that person so I can get control of their hands, that's what I'm going to take. Um, just just turn it towards you a little bit. There you go. Uh, the, Beautiful. Now we're, yeah. now we're in bit this whole time. No, no, you were good, and then it, it, you My think you knocked it. Cooler. Yeah. This way. Yeah. So, anyways, got a Delilah um, effect going. Yeah. What's, what's that mean? Delilah. You don't remember Delilah in the morning? The song? No, 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 no. It was a is a radio personality. She's nationwide type thing. Oh, maybe it was just me. Maybe it was a northern. Are you making thing. fun of my childhood because I was homeless and didn't listen to radio? Yeah, yeah, Thanks, absolutely, man. Yeah. This whole time. <laughs> so I'm just trying to guilt you. I'm good uh, at that. I've, I've got kids, so that's we get good parents get good at guilting people because yes. you practice on your kids. Yeah. Um. So back to the the strike thing. I don't really know how to make that look good. Um, but the reason we do that is to create an opportunity to, for another tactic. So now if it repeated strikes, maybe they're not getting the behavior change that they want. Um, but here's the point. Break that down a little more. When you're saying this, I, the way you're explaining it is, is, is cops are going to get it. And what I'm trying to harp on is like when you say repeated strikes, what he's, what he's saying is you punch somebody in the face and it, and they keep punching them in the face. You know right. what I mean? That's what I'm trying to, so, I want to break so, it down a little okay, bit so, so often what, what I see in, in my experience in review and use of force incident, a, a punch never looks good. I don't know how to make that look good. But we have to look at what is the totality, what, is the, what was the behavior that followed that. If a punch was followed by a control technique, that, it, that tells me the officer's doing that to move to a position where they can control the person, handcuff the person. If I look at, hey, they deliver a strike, they deliver another strike, another strike, another strike, another strike, there's usually a good chance that there's a degree of hesitation because the officer is is overthinking this, which is, I don't want to, if I de- deliver, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. It's probably my favorite one from that from that brewery. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, we want to deliver a controlled strike, and we want to, based on our experience and what we're trying to achieve, enough force that allows us to get the behavior change that we want. So if it's, if it's a momentarily a split second stun distraction, cool. Um, so that, some of that comes with training, some of that comes with experience, but if we're hesitating because we're thinking instead of being in the moment going, I need to gain control of the hands. I'm thinking, how is this going to look on camera? How is it? I might do a not very effective strike that's not very controlled it's not enough force to get that behavior change what does that mean it means i need to do it again yeah and then it didn't work i need to do it again so what's the one and done it's not about hitting as hard as you can it's about hitting to where this is effective enough or striking whatever the case is and it can it can even be with pressure points um, enough to where I'm getting the behavior change so I don't have to use any more force and I can it, it's it's for the greater good. Yeah. Um, it's so I can move to a position or gain control of the hands and handcuff. Yeah. So it, so the one and done concept, it's not about hitting somebody as hard as we can. It's delivering enough force that it could be, it, it's whatever is enough to affect that change. But if my mind is not in the moment and I'm thinking about what's going to happen later down the road, 
that can be a problem. That can result in hesitation and overcompensating behavior that leads to multiple strikes, which one strike, they don't look good anyways. Multiple strikes looks even worse. But sometimes officers, they go, well, I I was afraid. I didn't didn't know if I didn't want to hurt that. Whatever the case may be, there's some kind of hesitation based on their mind is somewhere else instead of in that moment. Yeah. And one of the points that I want to bring across to the community um, is sometimes you see an officer who is not being assaulted, but he strikes first. The officer strikes first. And it's always, it's always an issue. Like he, nothing, that guy wasn't doing anything. And there's these indicators that we see clenched jaw, clenched fist, um, fighting posture, little, little things that, and, and, and I'm not trying to negate or minimalize uh, a citizen's perspective. But what I'm trying to say is there's there's factors. But if you see an officer strike first and he hits, he does a one and done, like I like, that's the way I like to refer it. And, and he moves in and cuffs and, and does what he needs to do. In the long run, that was a safer option because if he, him haws around and, hits him lightly or doesn't doesn't hit him hard enough you know and and we use cop terms you know hit him effectively whatever what i mean is basically he didn't hit him hard enough and and it there it didn't create any sort of behavior change or stun him enough so i can move in and effectively cuff him if you see an officer strike somebody and whether they go to sleep knock him out whatever it is but hit him and it looks like the officer's assaulting him that is safer in the long run than an escalation of force because inevitably what's going to happen is if he doesn't hit him with enough force, he's going to have to switch to something else. Or it may ensue into some sort of grappling match or whatever. And as sure. soon as that t- that officer starts to get tired and fatigued or whatever it is, he may, and it's not always, but he may result to something stronger firearm baton i i've been an officer 17 years i've never used my baton on somebody i just it's it's not an option for me i don't i don't i like the other things it's not that it i don't think it's effective or whatever but i I almost look at my baton as a higher use of force than anything else i have other than a firearm obviously right um especially the ones we have (laughs) uh so I, I just I don't like I don't like the baton. Person, it's a personal preference. Um, and I, it's not that I nothing against anybody that goes to it. If that's a go to for you and it works, that's great. Um, but the point I want to I want to drive is that hesitation to actually hit somebody, to actually uh, apply some sort of pressure point or um, joint manipulation. That hesitation is going to cause you as an officer, and I hope officers are listening about this part. You're going to end up using a higher use of force and you got more questions to answer for you. And then on the citizen side, because you question officers when they do a one and done, or they decide to open hand slap somebody into unconsciousness, uh, um, an open hand slap. That's my favorite. I'm a big fan. And and I preach this to the people that I taught throughout my career is anytime I've ever punched somebody, I've regretted it. Not because I don't, it wasn't justified because it hurts me. But as soon as I realize that and switch to an open hand and the effectiveness of an open hand, 
and not holding back, it's been one of the greatest things I've ever done because on the citizen side, looking at it, like you, and and I'm going to use, you know, common vernacular, you just bitch slapped him and, and he, you know, you got what you needed and versus punching him and breaking a knuckle or missing and skipping off and hitting the, the pavement if they're on the ground or whatever it is. So the part that I'm trying to, to harp on for people listening is, Although sometimes it, it, like you said, it never looks good. It's not about how it looks. It's about how effective it is. And the effectiveness fast and quick and in a hurry saves us from escalating down the, down the road. And would you, a, a person who's got more experience and is a more of an expert in the eyes of the court, in the eyes of um, anybody else in this career field, would you agree with that? In a nutshell, it's it's this. I, I definitely agree that the hesitation and can can lead to compensating behavior. It's it's going to be about what is the the most effective way to gain control. That's and I also look at the other filters. What's within policy? Because if somebody is telling me, "Hey, listen, I know I got a traffic warrant. You want to take me to jail? I just don't want to go to jail." And and they kind of look at the ground and they turn around with their arms to their side and they walk away. Is that is that going to justify me running up and punch that person? I'm going to say no because I'm going to consider that it, we could we could we could say that's active resistance. However, there's no threat to myself. There's no. I mean, I haven't I haven't tried anything else. Um, so active resistance. Yes. It, it, it kind of depends on the lens we're looking at. If we're looking at like policy lens, uh, if I get an indication, and this is why officers' ability to explain their perceptions are extremely important. And for officers and department li- departments listening, the report writing component is extremely important. If there's a report I could pick, a t- category, where it's time to slow down is use of force reports because – Cameras are great, and we got to remember cameras are seeing what cameras see. They don't necessarily catch that I turn my head to the right or to the left when I'm responding to something here that's off camera, or that what sometimes what we see definitely on the news might be there's things that happen before or after, but also the camera it doesn't pick up tactile things like if I had my hands on this person. So here's what I'm getting at. So if there's something to indicate to the officer that this person is about to assault me, fight me, maybe they clench their fists, or like kind of some of the things you said. Maybe it's the nonverbal cues where how they slightly turn their feet and they put their fists at their side and they go, I'm not going to jail. And they're looking directly at me. Okay, this is, this is somebody who's putting themselves in a position based on those observations and facts. I feel that they're preparing to not only resist arrest, but they're preparing to assault me if I engage. So that might be why I went to maybe a taser so I could use force at safe distance. Or I said before moving in, I'm going to do a strike. So that takes their mind off of what is happening in that moment. So I can gain control of their hands. So, but if it, so we have to look at it through a couple filters. Um, one of those is what's reasonable from the officer's eyes. If somebody just says, man, I really don't want to go to jail today. That's not enough. That alone is not enough for me to just, use force in terms of a strike or, you know, slap, whatever the case is. But if somebody says, I'm not going to jail today, I don't care what you do. 
I'm not going. I'm using the mic for effect. I like it. So I'm not going to jail day. Do what you got to do, but I ain't going. And they're staring at me, and they're changing their body position. That's different. And I can articulate that. I can explain that based on those facts and observations. I felt this person was preparing to fight me. And if I got any closer, if I tr- if I tried to move into handcuff, they would hit me, strike me, or assault me. So in order to gain force effectively, I either deployed my taser or I moved in. I delivered a distractionary strike by way by means of a, a, a open hand strike that allowed me to momentarily stun them, so I can gain control of the right hand to get them on the ground. Right. So you know, on the citizen side, um, it's important. I don't want to say they have to understand that, but it's important. If we had that conversation that if you, you, I would tell anybody cop or not, look at this. What is this person's behavior? And usually most people go, oh yeah, he's about to fight. If you get any closer, he's going to punch you in the face. Most people will go, oh yeah, that's a fight. So, okay. So now you see what I see. So instead of, you know, trying to baton this person or do something that can hurt them worse, I did this strike. I know it doesn't look good, but that prevents me from having this boxing match with this person. Mm-hmm. And and then and then exhaustion happens very quickly. Those folks out there that haven't been in a fight, um, twenty seconds is a long time. Ten seconds is a long time. Yeah. So it's the, an officer moving into very quickly. Maybe maybe they try to talk to the person. Listen, I don't want to fight you. Do me a favor. Turn around. Put your hands behind your back. I don't want to fight you. I'm trying to escalate. Nope, I ain't going to jail. You touch me, it's on. Okay, that tells me a lot. I might try again. Please, I don't want to fight you. I'm trying to de-escalate. It's mm-hmm. not working. I, I'm going to get you in handcuffs one way or the other. You know, you got this warrant or you did whatever this is. That's I got it. I'm not mad at you, but I I don't want to get hurt and I don't want I don't want to have to hurt you. Do whatever you got to do, man. Come on, bring it on. Okay, here we go. So putting those details in and being being objective you know whether it's citizen or or law enforcement side which is let's look at what the officer observed body camera that's a good tool it picks up a lot of stuff doesn't pick up everything and again this is why the report writing is so important because if the if we watch the body camera and go wait a second and miss this we need to explain that the point is um, the one and done, the moving in, if sometimes we have to strike before we do that takedown, it's probably because what the officer observed and they knew if I hesitated, I've already tried de-escalation or I've tried this or there's no chance for that. And they know if I move in, there's a risk of injury. The only way I can prevent that is to stun them long enough to gain control. Um, then it's it's absolutely justified. Um, so we have to look at it through those filters. What was the officer observing? How well did the officer explain their side of the, the picture or their perspective, not just body camera, but in the report. And then also policy. If, if I'm not observing that potential risk of injury and the person just says, Hey, I don't want to go to jail. I got to, I got to go to work in the morning. And the officer punches that person. I got a problem with that. That so not only, not only am I not seeing the risk of harm or threat to the officer if they handcuff this person, that's not in line with policy. Yeah. So it, it's a couple couple lenses we've got to look at. But long story short is hopefully on the citizen side, um, that, that makes more sense, uh, which is quite often force is used, especially those strikes, to prevent and to gain control quickly, to prevent from using other force options that can result in more injury. If I don't, in many cases, if I perceive there's a threat or risk, if I don't gain control quickly, 
unless I'm a professional athlete, that level of exhaustion kicks in very quick. And that person as well, and the officer as well, both of them, as exhaustion goes up, they're more likely to do things that are more extreme. Yeah. So we got to be mindful of that. So if, we, if, we, if it's time to take action, we want to do it decisively and quick. And hesitation and confidence, what we talked about, the two go hand in hand. There's an opposite relation. Yeah. And I, I want people to understand from the outside, if you're, a, let's say you run biathlons, triathlons, all that stuff. Mm. Let's say you, you run 10 miles every other day, whatever it is. If you get in a 30 second fight, that is not comparable. Like you could be a person that runs marathons. If you get in a 30 second fight, you are going to be exhausted. Yeah. It's not the same. It's it's like a a person that um I I don't know how to explain it. You, you run all the time and then somebody's like, "Hey, you should try swimming a lap or two. And then you go try to swim and you're like, "Oh my god, I'm exhausted." And you you, you considered yourself a top athlete or you play football, you play any of these other sports and then there is something different in the dynamics physically when it comes to a real fight. And we can get into the science behind, you know, you know, adrenaline and all that stuff. And that was all factors. But for the citizens out there, I want you to understand, like, even if I run every single day and I, I lift weights, when I get in a fight, it's different. It is a physically exhausting, mentally exhausting. It's just a different thing. It didn't even affects the way you remember things. Mm -hmm. And that's why when you hear of somebody giving it's not smart to take a statement immediately after somebody's been in a fight. It's not smart because they're not remembering things correctly. You got to give the time, the body time to process. So as somebody who's, who's an expert in this stuff, what do you got to say about that? Okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to abbreviate it as much as possible. So two, two things there. Um, one is the physiology behind a fight. Uh, the physiology behind a fight, and we can even look at professional athletes that fight, whether boxing, MMA, same thing. It, it's anaerobic threshold. So if we're training in the cardiorespiratory arena, those are chemical processes that allow us to use oxygen efficiently. Uh, oxygen and fat in that chemical process result in carbon dioxide and water. So those those are good things to have. There's benefits, but cardio benefits cardio. And then there's the anaerobic side, which is without oxygen, that chemical process to produce energy. That's primarily weightlifting. That component, there's some lactic acid that built up. So there's some, we call that anaerobic threshold. And that's the threshold at which you're, based on your level of fitness, the lactic acid reaches a point where it spills over to surrounding muscle tissue. And what lactic acid or lactate does is it prevents muscular contraction. And a lot of people think, oh, lactic acid makes you sore. No, it's not. It's micro tears from the eccentric, the stretch of the muscles that create inflammation that causes pain and pressure. So that's lactic acid doesn't is not what makes you makes you sore. When it builds up, it is. There's other chemical processes involved in the cells, mitochondria in particular, that take that lactate and very quickly try to metabolize that. And what they spit back out is uh, ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So there's a chemical process there. So here's what I'm getting at. It is this. If you train for cardio, endurance stuff, your body chemically becomes very efficient at burning, utilizing oxygen and fat to make carbon dioxide and H2O. 
If you're dealing with high-intensity activity where it's maximum effort for short durations, maybe even long durations, like a fight, 10 seconds to 3 minutes, whatever the case is, what you're, you're doing is your body is rapidly depleting ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is a lot of energy. Most of us can sprint 10 seconds and hold our breath. We use ATP for that. And then when that depletes, then we start burning glucose. The waste products of glucose and ATP are lactate and pyruvate. Those don't leave the body like carbon dioxide and H2O. They stay within the body. The problem is when lactate and pyruvate, and they both deal with cellular processes and liver processes, when both of those get too high, our body fails to function normally. Our muscles can't contract. We get weak. We feel awful. Anybody out there who's done a Metcon or CrossFit knows what lactic, or anybody who's boxed or done jujitsu, any, anything, if, if you've done sprints, you know what that maximum effort feels like because you can't do anything else beyond that. You're done. But within a short period of time, depending on what you did, maybe as a 100-yard sprint, might take you three minutes, two minutes, or maybe as a three-minute boxer round. It could be a couple minutes, whatever the case is, or a Metcon or CrossFit workout. It could be a couple minutes. Here's what happens physiologically that lactate and pyruvate that are waste products that don't leave the body like the, You're the, fine. the uh, cardio respiratory processes. They stay within the body. So the body, the more we expose the body to that type of physiology, pyruvate and lactate is the waste product, high intensity stuff. The more we expose the body to that, the more efficient the cells and the liver get at taking that and taking those waste products out of the blood, and what they do is they turn into glucose and ATP, the energy sources. So here's what I'm saying. You can take somebody who's a marathon runner, and they might gas out in a 30-second fight because if their physiology is not there to handle that lactate and pyruvate that builds up in that high-intensity event, then muscles aren't going to work. And when muscles don't work and the body feels like it's dying and it ain't working, guess what kicks in? The limbic system, which is your adrenaline. And what it does is it squeezes the liver. I'm, I'm using analogies here. It doesn't squeeze the liver. It's, please, it's, don't, don't take the doctors out there. Yeah. It signals the liver to release, release a lot of glucose. So you get this. Once again, a, a adrenaline kicks in because, oh, shit, my body's not working. In 30 seconds, I feel like I'm dying, and I can't even do this. So my adrenaline kicks in. I feel no pain, and now I've got this rush of energy. Here's the problem with that. It's good for survival moments. It's not good for thinking moments. When my adrenaline kicks in, if I'm faced, thanks to the amygdala, these two little things that look like almonds at the base of our brain, thanks to the amygdala, when I'm faced with something or feel something where I feel like my life and, and my body's in serious danger, the amygdala takes over. Cognitive function shuts down. The limbic system, the emotion system kicks in. So in other words, if I'm in a fight, and if I feel awful because I'm not physiologically trained for that event, it's very likely my adrenaline kicks in. I get a spike in glucose, so I get a sudden surge of energy. Blood is shunted from non-vital areas like digestive tract is pushed to legs, buttocks, back. So I might vomit. I might crap in my pants, but my legs and my butt have all this blood in it so I can jump and I can push. But fine motor skills go away. I can't grab. And guess what? If I'm trying to grab under pressure and that's not working, I get scared again. So what do I do? The, the amygdala says, don't die, live. 
So what does the amygdala do? This is physiology. This is how the brain works. It says, do what you got to do to live. So if I'm in that fight and I think I'm dying, I'm getting these signals, adrenaline isn't working, my physiology in there to handle lactate and pyruvate, I'm going to do what I got to do to live. So off it, a fight, a 30-second fight with an unarmed person for, the, for somebody who's physio, physiologically not prepared for that, worst-case scenario, that could turn into them and it's not conscious, the prefrontal cortex that makes us, separates us from other animals, cognitive, reasoning, all that stuff, that shuts down when the sympathetic nervous system kicks in. That's what happens when, when adrenaline kicks in. When SNS kicks in, cognitive function, we're dumber. I don't know how to say it. Cognitive function disappears, survival kicks in, amygdala takes over, emotional uh, midbrain, limbic system kicks in, and our body says survive. So very rapidly, it seeks a file, something from memory that will help us live. Worst case scenario, 30-second fight, unarmed person. My body's failing. I think I'm dying. Physiology takes over, says don't die. Guess what I do? Grab my gun. It's, the officer's not, it's, it, to say that the officer is thinking, oh, they're going to shoot. No, this is physiology. So there's something to be said about not just training, but staying in shape, having confidence in our abilities. And also when we look at things, when I'm watching a video, ah, my adrenaline's not going. Anybody who's been in a car accident, a fight, a life and death situation, maybe a snake was about to bite you, a dog was about to bite you, whatever the case is, we all know what that feels like. And it's like, oh shit, I was trying to live. I was trying to do what I got to do. Same thing can happen in law enforcement. I'm not justifying rationalizing i'm just saying this is the physiology that happens so to me the big challenge is how do we counter that to prevent that from happening in situations that we might have been able to avoid that is a big question to unpack use of force training physical fitness wellness emotional intelligence developing trust between the community and law enforcement uh, effective report writing good leadership all of these things play into that so we're, you and I, we're, all this conversation, we're getting to this worst case scenario, which is I have to arrest somebody. They don't have a deadly weapon, but I get into this fight and for, it ultimately leads to me being in fear of my, my life or serious bodily injury and I end up using deadly force. On the surface, when we watch a video, whether it be on the news or in administration, whatever the case is, and we look at just that snippet, it's easy to say, oh, there's no, I would have done this. I would have done that. We have to look at the big picture, what led up to that. However, leadership. If I'm looking at that, and if I'm in a leadership capacity, I got to be honest, and I got to say, is some of that on me? Did I fail to train that? Am I, and I know this is a tough, tough thing to, 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 to talk about or even, even, I don't envy those people that are in executive level. That they're dealing with they're they're, they, they're good people. They care about people, but they have a lot of irons in the fire. They're doing a lot of things. Um, this is a tough one because we got to, as a department. What I don't care what agency is listening, but as a department, you got to ask yourself: Did we fail that officer? You have to ask that question because if we look at this and go, "Oh, that shouldn't have happened." Then if we, if we have got risk management, there's proximate causes, things closely related to time, 
contributory, which are often supervisory leadership, and then root causes, training. When something happens, I get it. A lot of us will say, well, that, that, that officer fucked up. That's on him. Man. Well, uh-uh. That's not why we're in this job, especially if you got rank. We got to ask ourselves, is there something I did that failed that officer? And if there is, I got to own, uh, own up to it. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing is, what can I do in the future to make sure this doesn't happen again? So all this conversation where happens kind of leading up to this kind of scenario. Um, and there's no one single answer. There's definitely officer training, confidence, their abilities to talk to people, experience, de-escalation training and scenarios. All that comes into play. There's the leadership from direct line leadership uh, or frontline leadership all the way up to the administrative side. And then there's the command and executive side, which is departmentally. Are we, are we still, I get it, we get busy because we deal with things, but are we still have the ability to step back and say, what are we doing from a holistic view to mitigate this in the future and we have to and that's one of the things i do and it's not easy to do is is there something i did that set the stage for this officer to be in that situation if if i'm especially as somebody that, that i'm in their chain of command i gotta say what what role did i play yeah because it, it's it's easy and it's it's nice to say oh that's on them nope 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 what departmentally is there anything we did that failed or set the stage for this because let's take emotion out of this job so much of this job is risk management because risk management is you identify bad things if you can identify the bad things we can manage the risk if we know where we fall um but we have to we have to look at the things we want to avoid and then also the converse i think or the inverse i guess it's safe the opposite there we go there you go the opposite of those is one of the things we want to have and though that's where we get into again effective leadership policy writing executive level leadership which is we got to reward what we want to be repeated we got to make sure that we encourage that the, the behaviors the ideal outcome and training we want to make sure we're training for ideal outcomes definitely worst case scenarios but if it's worst case scenario here's still the ideal outcome so i always go back law enforcement I kind of go back to this. I call it the, the, the teacher and the chalkboard, which is this. We, in law enforcement, we get really good at identifying. We, we, we we're called to a scene. Somebody tells us, hey, this, 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 and it happened. And then we talk to a witness and we go, did that happen? Yep. Okay, cool. So very quickly, we're like a little computer. We go, elements of the offense, this happened, this person behavior is criminal. I got to arrest you. We're really good at finding those mistakes because that's kind of i hate saying it that's kind of the one of the underlying uh, uh i guess nature of law enforcement is we're dealing with criminal behavior we still want to look at the good but in a nutshell if we got to arrest somebody we got to get really good at seeing where the criminal offense and behavior is cool the problem is i think my opinion that that behavior of finding that fault or that criminal elements of the offense we get really good at applying that in other aspects professional and personal so we forget that an officer may have done 10 things right and we get hyper focused on the one mistake now if it's egregious it could be that could be the mistake that watch most of them are not here's what I, i'm getting at it's this it's kind of a leadership lesson or reminder i guess the teacher in the chalkboard i don't know where i read it heard it whatever but it always stuck with me there's a teacher Walks up to the chalkboard. He tells the class, hey, 
we're going to talk about the times table today. I don't know, fourth grade class, maybe. Well, I guess today, since COVID, maybe they learned this in seventh grade, <laughs> is the times table for nine. No, that is sarcasm. You're yeah. empty. Yeah. No more? Oh, shit. I um, so it says, the teacher walks up and goes, hey, here's the times table for nine. And it's one times nine. He writes on the board, or she, whatever. One times nine is nine. Two times nine is 18, 27, 36, 44, 54, 63, whatever. Go to the, and he turns around. And he goes, hey, there's your nine, one times, uh, or nine times, or whatever, one through 12, all the way up. Out. Cool. And the class is giggling and laughing. He goes, what's so funny? They said, you got one wrong. Nine times five is 45, not 44. And he goes, oh. But did you notice I got 11 right? We have a tendency to do that, which is you got the one thing wrong. And when trust is, is there, whether you know whether it's internal or external with the community, we're less likely to say, "Oh, look, you got the one wrong." We got eleven right. We have a tendency to forget that. So we get a lot of things right. Doesn't mean we can't forget about the gap or where we're making a mistake. But especially when it comes to use of force, there's so many. When we look at that scenario, we just talked about worst case scenario. They got to arrest somebody. They don't have a deadly weapon, but I end up shooting that person or using deadly force. That doesn't sound good, but was it justified? If that officer, in a nutshell, and I'm not going to get too dive too dive dive too deep into Supreme Court cases, Supreme Court cases and Fifth Circuit cases, if we look at that in that moment, if that officer was basically placed in fear of their life, they thought the person had the opportunity, ability, and the intent to cause SBR or death. Okay, that meets is that meets the Tennessee versus Garner, the Grant versus Connor standard. Okay, cool. In that moment, in that moment, that's how the court looks at it. You know, it's. In that moment, is lawful. But everything leading up to that, is there something we could have done to prevent that? That's not just at the officer level, but at the departmental level. And looking in the mirror, that's a tough thing to do sometimes. So that's something those in leadership positions and departmental uh, executive positions, we have to periodically go, hey, back to maintenance, like I said, mm-hmm. tighten the bolts, whether that's be to, to, with us in the community or internally, we got to be able to say, hey, don't forget, we got to look in the mirror every now and then. And if if sometimes the failures of officers, certainly the proximate causes in that moment fall in an officer, but there's also contributory and root causes that we got to look at. What did we do or not do that set the stage? So I know it went kind of down a rabbit hole, but no, hopefully perfect. that kind of covers no, that. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I, I'm... I'm satisfied. We've 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 hit uh, a good time frame, a good ending point. Obviously, our cans are empty. Um, yeah, that's. It. But uh, before we end it, um, as far as use of force goes, is there anything else that you think is a contributing factor, or anything else that you think we need to bring up? Uh, is there any closing things that you want to make sure, not just the community, but other departments yeah. uh, take from this? Kind of in a nutshell, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with where we started or regards to use of force. It's this. Um, use of force, even though it's not a majority of what law enforcement does. If I, I don't know the exact statistics. I mean, if I was to guess, I'd say it's three, at the most, maybe 5% of what law enforcement is about. Most of it is about talking to people, maybe making some arrests in here, here and there, doing investigations, uh, you know, taking report calls. Um, so even though it's a small percentage of what we do, 
we have to really give it the attention that it deserves because when we look at risk management and the things that not just the community wants, but the agency wants it, it use of force is at the top of the list of causing the bad things to happen. So what does that mean? It means make sure the four layers, make sure that we're in line with case law, whether that's Supreme, uh, the circuit that we're in, state, whatever the case is, city. And then our, our policy reflects that, our training reflects that, and operation reflects that. And we have to remember this is a flexible job because legislation is going to change based on public policy and people. And that changes those four layers I just described. So use of force, it's going to continue to change in terms of what is either A, expected or even reasonable. Right now, the Supreme Court cases, I mentioned Graham versus Connor and Tennessee versus Garner, those still hold true today. Who knows? Five years from now, the Supreme Court may say, you know what? We see it differently. The point is, every department has to stay on top of those things. Second thing is, give it the attention it deserves. Make sure that we're training. If Where do you want to pay? On the front end or the back end? If you're going to pay somewhere fiscally, money-wise, pay money on the training. Fund the police departments. Uh, make sure we have that training and it's ongoing. Because if we don't and that's minimized, we're going to have problems on the back end. The, the issue there is not only do we damage trust, but the problems on the back end, those can often lead to loss of life. So give use of force the attention it needs, the funding it needs, the training that it needs, and make sure those that evaluate use of force are qualified to do that. Not everybody's qualified to look at a use of force incident, whether that be acts on camera and report and go, this is within policy. It takes training for that. Make sure you have the people that are trained in that arena. Um, oh, I think there was something else, but I forgot. But in a nutshell, just use of force, it affects everybody, all of us, citizens, police department. Um, we all want the same thing. So if we can collaboratively and collectively work together to try to find ways to improve trust, improve training, and make sure that's ongoing and then effectively have leadership in place that is qualified to look at those incidents, um, I think not only can we reduce unnecessary use of force, but we can move, it takes maintenance. It's not a one, it's not, we do this one time and it's fixed. It's ongoing because we are part of the community. Community is part of us. We have to accept that. But uh, if we have those things in place, not only can we reduce unnecessary use of force, uh, but we can also find some more effective solutions to the underlying causes that cause criminal behavior. And then the criminal behavior, when we respond to that, that's where use of force comes in. Yeah. So it's 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 a very philosophical kind of deep big picture, but use of force, it's at the top of the food chain. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how we how we can work through this collectively, departmentally, community wise, to to re- to reduce not just use of force, but the issues that drive use of force. Yeah. In I, I just want to say. I'm I'm a I'm an idealist, I guess at heart, optimist at heart. Um guys like you who it's one thing to nerd out on something and, and, and which I respect. 
You you do that. You when I do you nerd when, out. Yeah, when you when you go into something, you you nerd out on it. And mm-hmm. I don't know another way to explain it. But it, the motivation, the motivation is to improve things, and that's why I got into law enforcement, and that's why I am who I am today. That's why I started the show. It's why I did education. That's why I did all that stuff because I want. I, I don't know. I just, I, I want to make things better and I'm tired of hearing people say, well, that's the way things are, you know, I, whatever cliche you want to say. Um, it, it, although I, th- I think personally we're different in, in the way we look at things, our goals are the same. And I, I think that's why I, um, I'm a fanboy. I'm a fanboy of Buck Wheeler guys. Uh, so hopefully your wife's listening to this. Uh, it, it's just, it, I know in my heart, the way that I look at things, um, you've got the same mindset. You get there a different way. And I learned from that, and that's awesome. So uh, I appreciate you being here. Uh, I I love everything you've said today. Uh, I hope other people that are out there are listening to this. Um, We went long enough that my... Yeah, yeah, I saw that. My wallpaper finally kicked in, so that's awesome. And uh, I appreciate you being here, brother. Man, thank you, dude. This is very humbling. In in my mind, I'm just a regular guy doing whatever. And I know. I'm, but it's really cool to come here and talk. And I'm I'm hoping yeah. we get get to the audience that you and I are looking for. Yeah. And and the one thing is with you is like I feel like you're you're. This is the hard part to explain, but you're <laughs> you're pigeonholed. Like it's like I see this thing in you, and I, and I don't. know, Maybe I'm just the only one. I, but I don't think that I am the only one but I want to get you out to as many people as I can. This is obviously the best way I know how to do it. Um, because I think your mindset is, it's so far ahead of the direction police. I think police works in the right way. Oh, sure. And I just think you're ahead of the curve and I want to get people caught up as quick Mm -hmm. as I can. It's the only way I know how to do it. And I think what we're doing right now is going to change. Like we said earlier, I think it's the little things that we do now that we see the the fruit of that later that we never realized we would do. And you and me bullshitting over some beers, having a good time. Mm-hmm. I think I honestly truly believe in my heart that yeah. down the road, we can look back on this one episode alone and say that we have changed departments across the nation for the good. Right. And I, I know I don't have the following that would back that, but it's getting there. It's, it's, it's growing. The, the, the term that comes to my mind is sphere of influence. And that's all we can do. Yeah. If your sphere of influence is three people, it's three people. If it's a thousand people, it's a thousand people. Yeah. And yeah. as long as you're doing what, what you think is good and right for the greater good, man, keep doing it, man. Yeah. And, and thank you. This is to me, this is like awesome. Like looking, yeah. I mean, I'm, I feel like a kind of a, uh, to be invited to talk, you know, it, it's, that's a big, uh, definitely an, an ego boost, but I don't see myself this way. Like yeah. I just, I just do what I do because I think it's right and I give a shit and I'm trying to do something that I want to leave the world a better place when I got here and that's it, man. And yeah, so this is really cool for me. Funny thing is we never really talked about emotional intelligence. No, so that's another podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm with you and we, yeah. we touched on it, but, yeah. uh, and I think that's a good teaser for people. So yeah, to kind of, to, to get into that part, but man, I just, uh, I can't give enough respect to you and 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 and, and, and all honestly like heart to heart like we're we're boys and 
you are I I, I love my dad. He's a good dude. He's and a great guy. I yeah. love I love the way he police. I liked the influence he's had on me. But I have a hierarchy of people. And if you had a mustache, you could look at it I, every day. I know, right? <laughs> I don't. Mine grows I'm in. I'm looking at you. Going, I know. Hey, but his grows right. in black. Mine grows in red. So that's what makes it weird. Yeah. But um, and I'm taller and better looking. So uh, anyway, besides me being better looking, um, it, it, me getting back to the fanboy part, like I have a hierarchy of people that I look up to model after da 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 like and i've been military done all this stuff and oh, i love you bro okay and i I'm, you. I'm, it's Thank a hard to heart thing i love you too i, I love you man and yeah. I, you are probably the top person that i model my police work after Thank and, you. I, a lot. and i'm Appreciate not it. saying that because we're on the show or whatever it is but i we're only on the service for a limited amount of time and if I don't tell you that now, maybe I won't tell you it ever. But I'm with you. Thank um, you. I just want you to know that your work and the your heart that that you put into it, that's what I follow. And Thank you. it's one of those things that you see that stuff. And it's like Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. I, I love Joe Rogan. I love sure. him because I honestly believe his heart is behind what he does. Yeah. And haters gonna hate whatever it is. You know, if somebody that's on the top is going to get hate, but. I like his heart behind it. I feel like I feel it. Maybe, maybe I don't, maybe I'm totally wrong, but, um, I think you're right. Yeah. The way he does his show, I, I and that's why I copied it. I did. I I didn't reinvent the wheel by any means. I just took my expertise, which is this and, and my want to improve that community relations and, and applied it to this based on his model that he did Mm -hmm. for podcasting. So, um, I'm glad you finally came on here. I'm yeah. glad we waited because, like I said, I wanted to get everything perfect. It was a it was a while, yeah. It was, yeah. and 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 I understand from your perspective as being a little higher up and all that stuff. We had to make sure that this was on the up and up and and followed the right path sure. because we we do we have to walk on eggshells. I hate to say that, and people look at it and they're like, "Why don't you ever say the place you work?" Well, there's a reason. Yeah. One, they don't have anything to do with this. This right. is not a sanctioned thing by them, and I don't want people to construe that. This is my own. It is based off of me being in law enforcement, being you. But um, and another thing I want to get from you is um, community people. Like, sure, that's a you will be a good contact for that. So after we get off this, I'll talk to you about that. But anyway, brother, I appreciate you being here, um, and I just keep doing what you're doing, man. Man, no, you too. Thank you. Yeah, this is I, awesome. I appreciate it, man. I'm humbled by it. Thank you. Appreciate you being. Yeah. This episode of the podcast has been brought to you by flocksafety.com backslash two cops. That's F-L-O-C-K-S-A-F-E-T-Y.com backslash the number two. And the word cops, C-O-P-S, flocksafety.com backslash two cops. And I am also announcing that they are releasing a brand new device on October 19th. I can't share any of the details here, but think, what if you could solve gun violence like a drive-by shooting, car break-ins in real time, fights that break out, reckless driving? Well, you're going to want to check out their virtual product launch to find out how this brand new device will help you solve crimes in progress. Register for their virtual product launch on October 19th, and you can use Flock Safety to help 
you and your agency solve more crimes in real time. That's the bonus part, in real time, guys. One more time, check out flocksafety.com backslash two cops.